Welcome back to Dev Dive episode 32 at long last. I'm your host, Nighthawk. Today's guest is Nick Frigia, a.k.a. Riot and Step, a game designer on systems and balance of Wild Rift. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. No problem. So um, if you're a longtime Dev Dive fan and not a first-time viewer, you may be wondering where we've been for the last two over two years now. Um Dev Dive has kind of always been a very ethereal product where it very much relies on my personal motivation and, and my free time to get working. Um, and since the last episodes of the show, it's really just been a wild time. I mean, everyone knows that the last two years have been just a weird time in people's lives. So we're hopefully back for a good amount of time. I've got four or five guests lined up for the next few weeks. And I'm reaching out to some others, so iron's in the fire, but we'll see what happens there. So at the very least, we'll have a good few episodes of the show for this quote-unquote season. Um, and the who knows what the future holds. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. But for now, let's talk to Nick about his role at Riot. We'll go into a bit more depth later, but why don't we introduce what a game designer on Systems of Balance actually does and what that means for the game. Sure. So... My typical role is, well, systems and balance, you might have guessed this from the name of the team. It, it is sort of two separate processes. Balance is the more, uh, I think, one people who know me are probably more likely to be familiar with, where balance is typically about rounding out outliers in the game, you know, ensuring that the actual gameplay feels fair for, for players. And it feels fair and is fair are different things, and we try to do as as well as we can at both of those. And but managing both of those at the same time can be pretty difficult. There are, of course, going to be instances where gameplay is going to feel very different from reality, uh, in terms of you know power or uh, frustration or or any of these things. Uh, and so this is where balance comes in and and tries to round out some of those rougher edges. It's not the goal is not every champion is fifty percent and every item is fifty percent in every slot, right? You know the goal is. Everything is close enough that, you know, you can play every champion and you can play a bunch of different play styles and you can win. Uh, not necessarily to say that everything is exactly the same power level. Uh, and then the system side of things is more of the long, it tends to be more of the longer or medium term types of projects where systems kind of refers to uh, the gameplay systems that exist in the game. These are the items, the runes, uh, the minions, the towers, you know, all, all of the kind of gameplay systems like the jungle, et cetera, right? Uh, and this can be anything from, you know, gameplay systems can really consist of anything from, for example, the huge jungle rework that we just put in in 3.5, which, you know, PC also just very recently did a huge jungle rework too, just kind of coincidentally, Um but, uh, you know, huge jungle rework to changing the mechanics on towers to reworking an item or, you know, reworking an entire you know set of items or adding new items, right? You know, for example, in the most recent Wild Rift patch, I just added uh, a new version of Lord Dominic's regards, uh, you know, for 80 carries to, to have a crit percent armor pen option. Um, and so that's kind of where the systems and balance designers come in is we're the people who uh, have some control, not full control over like, what are we doing, right? Some of these things are dictated by... For example, the jungle rework is, hey, leadership comes to us and they say, hey, look, jungle Q rate is really terrible. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's causing problems for other teams where they, you know, the Q times are very difficult for us to handle because of how few people are queuing for jungle. Can you make some improvements here? And so we go around and, and we look to make those improvements. But we are also, you know, in the example of, of Lord Dominic's, uh, hey, 
this isn't something that we had to do, but we felt like 80 carry build paths felt bad. Uh, and so that's where we come in and we say, hey, this is like a player pain point that we've noticed. We've seen this in feedback. We felt this ourselves. And we would like to kind of work on something to to round this out and, and improve this point. So uh, balance you can kind of think of as the short-term process to round out the rougher edges in the game and, and try and keep everything within reasonable bounds. And systems is kind of the longer-term processes that are trying to just always strive to make the game better in the long term. So, okay, here's a very basic analogy that you can correct me if it's wrong um, that I think at least somewhat fits. So would you say that like the systems are sort of like the game board for a tabletop game and then the the champions are sort of like the the uh, pieces that go onto the game board? So the game board can shape the game and then the pieces go on top of that. Yeah, I think that's fairly accurate. I will say one thing that's a little bit weird about systems in MOBAs, well, at least the way that Riot does these, I'm not entirely clear on how other uh, dev teams on the work on other MOBAs are structured exactly, but uh, the way that design is typically structured on MOBAs that I'm familiar with, Champions is typically considered like its own huge system that's that's like owned by a whole other team, right? Even though Champions really are in and of themselves a game system, uh, that is owned by, you know, in Wild Rift, it's the Champions team. In PC, it's also called the Champions team. Probably not that surprising. Uh, but, you know, there is this uh, whole other system that's owned by another team that's like, we do make changes to these champions for balance purposes. Uh, and in some cases, we've even made, you know, kind of systems level changes to them. But typically speaking, we kind of are a little bit more hands off on one system in particular. But the rest of the game systems, which kind of covers any part of the gameplay, which if we were talking, making comparison to a board game, it'd be not just the, the game board itself and the pieces, but also the cards that you draw, right? If we're talking about like Monopoly or, you know, the, the mechanics, right? The, di- you know, the, the dice that you roll to, to get these things, right? Like pretty much all the game mechanics are part of the game systems. In our case, though, it's a little bit weird that we kind of make an exception for what is typically considered to be the most important game system. <laughs> I, I like the, dif- uh, the separation because I feel like when you are making changes to the systems you have to be very, very cognizant of how that will affect each champion because cause when you change a champion, it does affect other champions in terms of champions that may be strong against that champion get get weaker, quote-unquote, and champions that may be weak against that champion get stronger. But the systems have such a, a wider and, and sort of like harder-to-track effect on that. And and for people who play League of Legends or or Wild Rift, I think you'll see that quite a bit when... Like items get changed, and you'll see a champion like Ezreal just get stronger all of a sudden because one of his his item abusers uh, just suddenly became the good. So it, it's I'm guessing a lot more difficult to to really find out all of like the very little uh, nuances of the system changes versus champion changes. Um, but before we get too much into Wild Rift, sorry, that's my cat. Uh, before we get too much into Wild Rift, I actually wanted to go over something more about your education and employment history. And I do want to talk a lot about Wild Rift and games down the line, but sure. uh, I wanted to start with this. So um, I don't actually know a ton about this. Do you? What is your degree in, if you even have a degree, and why did you decide to get it at the time? So I have a bachelor's. I have a double major in math and computer science. Uh, and something, you know, that might, seems likely to come up probably more than once in this, this interview process here, 
uh, is I'm not really much of a long-term planner. Uh, when I went to college, you know, I went to a very small, like you know, nobody's ever heard of it, very small public school uh, that was in state and I had a partial scholarship, right? It was, it was kind of a, a an, it was partially an opportunistic thing for me of like, this is a great opportunity for me to go and, and kind of try stuff out. And basically what I did was, was I went there, I went in undeclared and I took a bunch of the kind of first level classes of a bunch of different majors and tried to, you know, just kind of figure it out. What do I like of these these different subjects? Which ones do I actually like, and which ones do I want to kind of pursue? Uh, and you know, a lot of them they didn't. You know, I, I immediately said this is not for me. Like, I have no interest in this. Um, and what ended up sticking was I really liked the math like the mathematics side of things. I really liked the computer science classes that I was taking. Uh, and then, thanks to uh, you know, kind of ironically enough, some poor math both on the part of me and my advisor. I kind of immediately in my sophomore year, after deciding that was where I wanted to go, I committed to the double major, which uh, we thought because of all the AP credits I brought in that would satisfy a bunch of the core requirements so I could skip those, uh, we thought it would be doable with like a couple of summer classes. Unfortunately, we miscalculated, uh, made some errors there, and then I ended up in my final semester senior year. Not only did I take 24 credits, you know, which standard college semester 16 says it essentially 50% more classes, two extra classes on top of the normal four. Uh, I was also playing in the amateur scene at the time uh, for PC uh, and yeah, for league, for PC league. This is back way back in the day. Um, And so that semester got very out of hand, right? On top of the fact that the previous, you know, summer, I had also taken several summer classes to try and, you know, fit in a bunch of extra requirements. So you know, I, I did end up getting the, the double major in the, the regular four years, but, uh, you know, could have definitely used some better planning to at least split out the extra classes, you know, between a few different semesters instead of doing both of them in the same one. So it kind of, I think, is a good showcase of my lack of good long-term planning skills. Um, and kind of, you know, to answer the original question of like, why did you get them? It's like, because those are just the classes I liked and I liked taking the math and computer science classes and I was interested in them. So I wanted to take as many of them as I reasonably could while I was there. Uh, so that's kind of how it ended up playing out. So, okay. So you mentioned you were playing league uh, on the college team. What, what year were you, was this, was, what was your senior year? So this, so this wasn't for a collegiate team or anything. This was in the amateur scene at the time. You know, this is before collegiate was really a big deal. Um, this was in 2015. Uh, okay. So we're talking like, you know, back in way back in the day when, you know, there were still like go for lulls around that actually paid out RP and stuff like that, right? Like it was like a lot of a lot of what my team played in, especially in the early, you know, in the early days when I was on um, the original team I was on, uh, we would just play in like RP tournaments on the weekends, and there'd be a lot of like challenger teams or master teams or like high diamond teams that were competing, and um, you know, at the end of the day, whoever won would just take home like you know maybe some mouse pads and a bunch of RP or something like that. Um, Later on, of course, we, we moved on to other things and, you know, we ended up winning, you know, actually a lot of, of money, you know, in some of the later tournaments. But when I first got started in 2015, a lot of the things we were competing for in the amateur scene back then was just, hey, you know, this is just a Riot sponsored tournament that just has like 10K RP or whatever as the reward. Don't forget the most important reward of all, Triumphant Rise. <laughs> That's right. Actually, yeah, that was that was really big for me when I first started out. Um, you know, the first time I got Triumphant Rise after winning a, an RP tournament, I was... I was actually super hyped about that at the time, for sure. Although it's been so long, I you know I didn't even really remember it until you mentioned. Yeah, it. <laughs> I um, this is gonna date me so hard. I was never really good at league. I like I think the best I've ever been in league is like plat three or plat two. So I'm not at the upper echelons of gamer skill. Um, 
but I managed to scrape a a tournament win on one of those tournaments we were talking about, one of the right sanctioned ones, in a twisted tree line three three uh random tournament <laughs> where you got to play right. random champions. Um and somehow my team won and we got triumphant rise. This was I mean, this must have been like twenty fifteen or twenty fourteen, way back in the day. Um yeah, I got like two thousand RP and triumphant rise and I've been coasting on that high ever since. <laughs> um no it 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 was really fun i'm actually kind of sad that riot has stopped uh sort of promoting those amateur event kind of things because that was a lot of uh a lot of good memories formed back in those days i agree for sure right like there were a ton of people that i got to know through the like the tournament scene and and you know a lot of like I, i had a ton of fun playing in those tournaments even though you know, looking back is, you know, I definitely remember the, the positive parts, but like, if I really think about it, it's like, I do remember there were also lots of situations where it was like, oh, this tournament just failed to fire, you know, not enough people showed up or the yeah. tournament admins, you know, mismanaged it or whatever. And it's like, I totally understand like why that stuff isn't being run anymore because there definitely were a lot of problems, but the highs were really high for sure. Like, you know, when you, when you got in these like really tough tournaments and you, you know, you took down the challenger team and, and, you know, you ended up winning or whatever, right. It was, it was a really cool uh, like it did lead to some really, really cool moments for sure. So, uh, I, you know, I, and I think that that's kind of like, I don't think we're quite there in terms of PC here, but it's like that, I think that was kind of where Clash was trying to, to capture was like the, the idea was to try and get those high highs without the same low lows, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to play devil's advocate for, for why they removed it, I personally have experience with tournament organizers who were legitimately selling like, triumphant rise codes to people for the highest bidder so riot obviously didn't want to encourage that and there's only so much oversight you can do when you're promoting stuff like this to literally millions of people so like you said you'll miss the highs but the lows were difficult uh getting a little bit back on track um a lot of the people i've had on the show and just the people i've seen on twitter and, and other people talking about game dev don't really put a lot of weight into their college degrees. Um, how do you think your education has prepared for prepared you for your uh, professional life in game dev? So, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of the discourse about this as well. And it's like, I think a lot of what you see, at least at least a lot of what I've seen people talking about, like even in person, right? It's like I've heard this discussion at the office more than once. Um, you know, a lot of the discussion I've seen tends to get really polarized, like either, oh, for this role, it does not matter or like for this role, it's, it's a must or whatever. And to me, I think there are like, there is value in a lot of the soft skills you get, right? It's like, I I can tell you, you know, yes, it is true that on a daily basis, if I think like what skills I'm using, how many of those are actually like literally tied to things that I learned in college, it's like not very many of them really. Right. You know, but how many things are kind of indirectly tied to things that I, you know, got significantly better at, at in college or had opportunities to significantly improve at at college that, you know, in some cases I took, there's a lot of those, right? Like, I think there's a lot of kind of indirect soft skills that you can build. And ultimately, like my, like when people, you know, because I, I sometimes talk to people about getting in game dev, um, you know, from time to time. And, and my personal take on this is like college is definitely not for everyone uh, and it's not for every role. Uh, there are, you know, some roles out there that, you know, you just must have a degree to be considered for this at all. Um, game dev is definitely a little bit different from a lot of other industries where there are a lot of positions where that's not the case. Uh, but that having been said, even if the, the you know, the degree isn't necessary for the role, I do think there's a lot of uh, soft skills you can build by going to college. And there are situations where, you know, you can be a great applicant, but 
it can be hard to get your resume to be great enough to get the interview, right? Like, and you know, maybe if you got the interview, you would, you know, get the job, you know, 20 or 30% of the time, right? But getting the interview can be so unbelievably difficult because, you know, I can say this from, from being on the inside part of this, of like, you open up these game, you know, these, these positions at, uh, you know, in game dev and, and you just get inundated with like hundreds or, or even thousands of applications. And so anything to make your application stand out at, you know, which college degree, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe not the most relevant thing for every role, but it, it can help for sure. Right. You know, you see, it, you know, if you see the exact same two resumes and one of them has a college degree, right. Generally speaking, you're probably, you know, gonna, you're, if you only have one spot to give, you're probably interviewing the person with the college degree. Right. And so there's value to the degree, but I do like, I do understand the sentiment of other people have of like, you don't need this to perform like, and, and there's, you know, in terms of bare essentials, that is 100% true. Right. You know, if I didn't have a degree, if I'd never gone to college, I would still, you know, baseline be able to perform my, my like job functions, if that makes sense. So bouncing off of, of something that you said there, um, and it's a little off topic, how, I know this isn't really your field, you're not a hiring manager or anything, but how would you recommend somebody spice up their resume to sort of like make it stand out from the crowd other than maybe a college degree? So a lot of this is going to depend upon the position. Right. My, the, my interviewing experience primarily comes from interviewing people for GAT, the game analysis team at Riot, um, which is a pretty different role from the other one I've, I've done, you know, some things for, which is interviewing people for, well, interviewing and, and doing, you know, resume reviews for uh, game design. Um, and so I, I like, I treat the resumes in those two very differently. And I treat the interviews in those two very differently because they are different, very different positions and I'm looking for different skills. Right. Uh, and so it's hard for me to give like good general advice here in terms of like generic things that would apply to every role. But uh, what I can, what I can say that I'm fairly confident in it is that having things on your resume that represent, you know, high levels of investment, high levels of achievement, you know, high levels of kind of going above and beyond. These are the things that people typically tend to attach to on resumes and look at these. Like one of the things that I can tell you from my experience, you know, especially before I worked at Riot when I was doing software engineering, um, one of the things that got me into interviews, you know, people would literally just tell me this to my face back then was like, oh, you have a double major that like you clearly went above and beyond, right? You did more than you had to, to get a college degree, right? Um, and so stuff like that, right? Just kind of showcasing that you, you did more than the minimum um, and or like great achievement of like, not only you did more than the minimum, but you did really well at this thing. Those types of things definitely show up well on resumes. And that, that's just like generally good advice. I don't think that's really specific to game dev. Yeah. And I think, at least from my experience, I would recommend um, one, obviously have somebody who you trust and you, you respect review your resume and give you some pointers because at least for me, I have a hard time not being humble on my resume. Like, like I'm not the type of person to talk myself up and especially in a professional sense, I'm kind of like one of the guys who are like, Oh, what are your skills? And I'm just like good at stuff. I'm good at things. So if you know somebody pretty well and they have a, like a pretty good idea of your professional ability, uh, have them review your resume and, and give them, uh, have them give you some suggestions on what they think you're good at. And then you can decide whether or not that you, that's something you want to include on there. Um, and go further, like Nick said, go further than just your work experience and your, your college experience, put, um, projects that you've invested a lot of time into. If you've, um, if you're in art, obviously a portfolio speaks for itself hundreds of times more than any resume could. So 
a good portfolio of anything that you can put together. And even if you're outside of art, there's a lot of things that you can create in a portfolio um, that can go a long way. Uh, like if you've made a game, if you've made a tabletop game or a, a really crappy like card game or something, put it on there. Why not? Won't hurt, hopefully, <laughs> unless it's really, really bad. <laughs> um, okay, so last question about your your degree, uh, and this is something I like to ask everybody because everyone's answer is a little different. Would you recommend somebody trying to get into your role today take the same route that you did in education? I think if someone were in a similar position to me where they had a great opportunity, you know, bringing in a ton of, you know, AP credits, you know, had an opportunity to go to college, take a lot of classes they wanted to take, have a, you know, have a great experience, honestly. Like I had a lot of fun, you know, just kind of learning whatever, you know, whatever kind of, I felt, I felt like learning at the time. Um, and, you know, not only did I have a fun time doing it, but I set myself up to have a great backup plan, right? My, you know, as a software engineer, I was making, you know, kind of, honestly, to be, to be really honest, like ridiculous money, um, you know, for a just out of college student, um, when I did do that. Uh, and I think overall, from that perspective, given the same opportunities that I had, I would say absolutely yes. Now, most people aren't going to be offered that level of opportunity, right? It's like, I am not going to tell you that I was not incredibly lucky to get all of the opportunities that I had, because that wouldn't be true, right? I was very lucky to be in that position. I think for more, you know, kind of average people looking, at, you know, looking at or kind of like more average luck, I guess I should say, not necessarily average people, but just kind of looking at like the more typical situations. What I end up often recommending to people is is looking into, you know, kind of an associate's degree, you know, see what what the options are uh, for you at lower investment. Because to me, I did talk about those soft skills that you can get from college. It's like you can get those by going to a community college and getting an associate's, and you'll get kind of, you know, in my opinion, you know, like seventy five to eighty percent of the value for you know, half the time investment and, you know, what, like two to 3% of the, the monetary investment, right? You know, the value proposition here is just ridiculous, like unbelievably lopsided, right? And, and you know, most associate's degrees, you know, if you really do want to continue and go get the, the full bachelor's, you can then just spend the extra two years and do that, right? And so that's kind of where I would I would look at is, is like, you know, this is a classic thing people talk about, especially in card games, is like options or power. It's like, I don't know why people don't generally say this, you know, in, in general life advice, but it's, you know, the more options you leave yourself open to, the more likely you are to be able to, you know, string together the right sequence of things that you want in your life to accomplish whatever it is you're, you're looking for. Right. And so the, like, I would generally recommend giving, you know, leaving yourself open to the most options in the future. And so doing things like getting an associate's degree is often going to be the best way to do that. Yeah, that 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 struck a chord with me. Uh, I actually went to a community college and got an associate's degree in computer science, and that's when I learned that I didn't like college and I didn't want to go to, <laughs> to a four year degree. Um, because I think something that people need to understand about college before they get into it is you'll only get out of it what you're willing to put into it. And yep. for me personally, I wasn't willing to put in the time or the effort to actually learn stuff. Um, and I'm glad that I spent a few thousand dollars on a community college degree rather than spending $80,000 going to a four-year degree and, and basically doing, learning nothing. Um, and that's something that you have to really decide for yourself. You have to decide, do I learn well in a traditional educational environment? Is those soft skills that I'm going to learn by working with other people and hopefully learning team building and, and collaboration skills, am I going to get that? 
or would I rather learn through more alternative methods like through online classes or through um, sort of like the quote-unquote self-taught aspect of just fucking around and <laughs> learning shit. Um, and a lot of that has to do with your personal work ethic. And, and I know a lot of people don't really do well in a college environment. They just don't vibe with it very much. So that's something that you personally have to decide before you hopefully spend a ridiculous amount of money or put yourself in debt to go through that. I mean, and people learn in lots of different ways, right? It's like, if you're someone who learns by doing, then a lot of the time you're going to be, you're going to be gaining, getting a lot more mileage out of, uh, you know, going out there and, and, you know, making tabletop games and, you know, making games in, in unity or, or whatever, right. Simple games and going and making some mods for some games that you play on steam or whatever, uh, than you are from going to college. You know, if your eventual goal is to get into game dev or, or you know, whatever your goal is, right? Again, a lot of this advice, I think, you know, there's a de game dev flavor on some of the things I'm saying here, but it's like a lot of this is just generally like, not just, you know, game dev advice, but just general advice of like, you have a specific goal. People like learn in lots of different ways. If you need to gain a specific skill to get to that goal, you're going to first have to figure out what is the best way for you to learn that skill, right? And that's not the same for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's really important to get this sort of advice out there because some of the more traditional sources of this advice, I am a firm believer that, that the college environment and the, the, at least in tech, the work environment has drastically evolved over the last 20 years. It's just a completely different sphere from what it used to be. So some of the more traditional outlets of, of life advice on stuff like this is just hopelessly outdated. And that's something that if you're like reading a book from maybe 10 years ago, it may not be applicable today. So I think getting the most up-to-date information, at least to have in your lexicon of consideration, like, like at least using it as a jumping board to, to make your decision is important. Um, but you actually gave me a really good segue into our next topic of your previous roles before Riot. So you were talking that you were a software engineer before joining, uh, can you tell to me a little bit more about that? What, what was that like? So I had a few different software engineer roles and, and like, truthfully, you know, the reason I got into this wasn't because again, you know, lack of long-term planning here well, this was never something I was like, Oh, this is the job I want is well, I had a computer science degree and this was what people were willing to call me back about, you know, I applied for lots of different stuff, but uh, you know, this was really the, the thing that was in demand, both in the area that I was in and just in general, when I graduated, um, you know, there's not there's not a ton of demand for, you know, people with random bachelors in math, but there is a lot of demand for people who might have the skills to be a good, you know, software engineer, right? And so there were companies willing to take risks on recent college grads with computer science degrees. And so I went to a few of these different companies, you know, one, you know, in particular, I only, I stayed out for a very brief time because I absolutely just could not stand working there. Um, and then another one I ended up working for, for about a year uh, in financial software, uh, where uh, I was working on, you know, enterprise software, which if you're not familiar with the term is uh, essentially the software that's used internally uh, at a big company. So banks and, you know, other financial, you know, transaction companies like PayPal, et cetera, they have a lot of this, right? There's lots of regulation on these companies. And so the software has to all meet compliance standards and, and you know, do all the things properly, you know, and so there's a lot of, you know, naturally, this means there's a lot of software engineers behind the scenes making this software work. And then of course, you know, fixing the bugs and all that other sorts of stuff, right? Uh, and so 
generally my experience working as a software engineer, doing the like the full-time jobs that I had, as well as I did some like part-time contracting on online as well at, at, at different times. Uh, my experience was generally that the work is, at least for me, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly boring. I could not tell you how unfathomably bored I was at work pretty much every day. Uh, I did not enjoy it at all. There were places I worked where I liked the environment and I liked the people. Uh, but one of the things that kind of eventually spurred me to, to look, you know, for other places to work, other lines of work was, hey, you know, I was working at, at you know, one of these these tech firms where they, they did set up a really cool environment with a lot of people that uh, I liked. And I was kind of thinking, well, what if I could have that and also do something that where I'm not like completely bored out of my mind the entire time I'm working. So uh, that was kind of really how I ended up there. And again, you know, kind of going back to the lack of long term planning, it was never like, oh, I'm going to work as a software engineer for two years and then, you know, transition, you know, going over to Riot. It was like, well, I got laid off and I said, I'm done here. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing this again unless I absolutely have to. Not going through the whole process of finding another job and going through the, the learning process. Cause I'm sure every company has, especially for software engineering, every company has very specific ways that they want you to function in their team. So relearning that, I'm sure, was not a an appealing prospect. Yeah, it, it definitely was not a, an appealing idea, right? It, you know, even though I had the the kind of base level certification for the the field that I was working in at the time, uh, and that is a very kind of attractive thing. You know, I, I still to this day because I have this, I should take it off, but I have that certification <laughs> on LinkedIn. Uh, I still to this day have recruiters emailing me like desperately begging me to come interview or even in some cases just literally just offering me a job saying like, look, we have jobs in this area. Please come work for us Please. Uh, because I have this, this like baseline certification. It's, it's a very rare, like it's, it's a very unusual field where there's a lot of demand, but not a lot of people who are trained in it. Um, and I would, you know, one of the things that did encourage me to try out, you know, what at the time seemed like something crazy, which was like applying to riot and, and trying to get that game analysis job I started in um, was, I, I felt very safe. I was, you know, I was kind of thinking like, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I can always go back to doing this boring job that's paying me, you know, I, I forget what exactly what the rate I started was. I think it was thirty-seven forty-two an hour, I believe was what I was making, which, you know, even today for a just out of college grad would be an insane rate. You know, think about that back in 2015. Yeah, that was absolutely, inflation. <laughs> you know, yeah, that was absolutely ridiculous money for me, you know, thinking back to that time, um, like how much they were paying uh, for, uh, you know, just a basically random, just out of college computer science student. Oh, actually, here's a really good question about that. Were you living in LA at the time or where were you living? So I'm from the East Coast. Okay. Uh, I bounced around a little bit. So I went to college in Maryland. I grew up in Maryland, uh, you know, very close to, well, I grew up very close to Delaware and Pennsylvania, you know, up in the upper right-hand corner of Maryland for anyone who's looking at a map right now. Uh, or has seen Maryland before on a map, I guess. Uh, I went to college in Southern Maryland uh, on the water, uh, which was a very interesting, very different experience for sure. Uh, and then I spent a little bit of time working in Fairfax, which is in Virginia, you know, by DC. It's not physically that far away, but it is a pretty different place, you know, being very close to Washington, DC instead of, uh, you know, in Maryland. And then uh, when I was working in financial dev, I was instead in Delaware, which again, physically not that far away, but... Uh, it was in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, out with some farms uh, and stuff, sort of stuff like that. You know, the, my rent was literally like less than half of what it is here in L.A. So the whole thing that caused me to move to L.A. was getting the job at Riot. And so I moved across the country and, and uh, uh, you know, paid 
you know double in rent uh, what I was paying. Yeah, that was my experience as well. Moving from from the middle of nowhere, North Carolina, to Los Angeles, I was paying three or four times what I would be paying for like a. I was living in a room in somebody else's house in Los Angeles, and I was still paying three or four times what I would be for like a a house uh, where I'm from. Um, and that's another thing that you really have to to factor in. I don't think a lot of people really get the full idea um when they see salaries in tech where it's like hey you have to really quantify and you're going to be paying a specific cost of living for your working and you really have to be cognizant of what that's going to be because that can have a huge cut into your compensation because getting eighty thousand dollars a year in remote work for a little town in north carolina is a lot different from getting eighty thousand dollars a year in a city where a studio is starting at nineteen hundred dollars now, sometimes somewhere in the city. Sometimes more, sometimes less. So oh, for sure, yeah. And, and like, that. yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, game dev, especially you know, COVID times definitely impacted this a lot. A lot of people have, you know, really wanted to move to more remote work to allow for, hey, you know, we don't have to, if, if you're working remote, you don't have to live in LA or or the Bay Area or or whatever, right? Where you know the rent is you know, 2x to 3x the, you know, the the areas you could be living in if you just wanted to live somewhere with decent internet, you know, and, you know, where you could work online and do whatever, right? Uh, and that's obviously like, a, you know, essentially getting a huge raise if you do end up doing that. Although, of course, there are trade-offs for that. Like, there, there's definitely some cool things about living in LA, right? Uh, you know, yesterday, or I think it was two days ago, my lunch was delivered by a robot, right? That was cool. Um, you know, that was uh, like, there's definitely some cool things about, uh, living in Los Angeles, but it is very expensive for sure. Okay. Tan- tangent, quick, quick tangent. Um, cause I want to talk about that. When you say robot, do you mean like, okay. Okay. Go ahead and explain. I, I want to hear more. So this is, so, so I ordered this, um, on one of the, the several, you know, delivery apps. I don't even remember which one I have all of them on my phone. You know, it's for whenever I want to order stuff in case mm-hmm. one of them isn't working at the time or, or has you know no delivery drivers or whatever so order one of these services this thing is basically a cooler on wheels like that's essentially what it is like that's actually what it looks like and that is really what it is and it's basically just like a locked cooler where i don't know exactly how it's loaded i don't know exactly how this works uh but uh they somehow get the get you know get the food packaged inside the robo cooler it's on wheels it drives on the sidewalks right it it doesn't go on the roads It, it drives on the sidewalks I assume, you know, it, it, well, I know this because I looked up their website afterwards because I was very interested, you know, it's kind of similar to what you're, 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 you're very interested in this whole thing. Uh, I was too. So I looked at the website of, of the company that makes these robots. Uh, so they're driven by actual human people. They're, they're essentially like remote piloted. Uh, and they, I guess, just use like the crosswalks like a person normally would. And they just deliver this food essentially in a cooler. Um, and it just sits outside, you know, wherever, wherever the drop point is, it just sits there. And you go up to it and then, you know, on your phone, you, you unlock it, you know, using the, uh, you know, using the, the app or whatever, or, you know, te- you can text them or whatever. You just text them unlock or whatever. And then it just opens up and you just take your food out and then you leave. And it, it's, for me, it was great. Uh, it, you know, I definitely dislike, you know, interacting with the average person just generally. And uh, it's also especially convenient for me because the apartment where I live, there's not like a convenient place for the people to like temporarily like pull up if they're delivering something. So it leads to some awkward situations where sometimes people like block traffic and I get really nervous for them or like, you yeah. know, they're like cause an accident that's going to get out of control or stuff like that. So having the robot pull up on the sidewalk was like an overall just spectacular experience in comparison. 
Okay, two things I want to say about that. One, I've lived in LA and I'm flabbergasted that this company even exists because my first thought is that somebody is going to pull up with a, a pipe or a bat and just beat the crap out of the poor little robot <laughs> and just <laughs> run away. Um, and then two, I'm just really surprised it works just via the crosswalks. That's really cool. I, I like the idea of like somebody with a little Xbox controller just driving a robot down <laughs> the streets of LA, just hanging out. Um, that sounds like a fun job. Um, it but does, actually. This is this is really interesting. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, so pretty much as far away from LA as you can get. And we have a little startup here called Flytrex. And Flytrex does food delivery via flying drones. So I've <laughs> multiple times I've gotten food from uh like either Starbucks or Zaxby's or Wendy's or whatever just flown in above my my house. Like it has a bag on a string and this string goes and it lands on my front <laughs> arm. You just grab the food and go inside. And it's still very much in the, the like the venture capitalist beta form right now where they're changing things constantly. And obviously this is a very weird business model, but I personally really like the idea of, of um, ending the reliance on, on a network of, of underpaid contract workers having to go to every single restaurant dozens of times a day to to do food delivery like if we're going to get into the the extreme laziness of, of having all our food delivered it might as well be done by automated robots instead of some poor guy <laughs> um so i like those ideas i don't know how realistic it is to be a widespread thing but i really like the idea that I like I really like the sidewalk the sidewalk guy idea because obviously the drone won't work everywhere because airspace concerns and stuff like that. So the sidewalk drone is really funny to me. Uh we got pretty far off topic, but that's fine. That's kind of <laughs> how the show works. Um before we move on from from the software engineer role, I wanted to ask you um if you had any highlights of like the very highs and very lows of those jobs and um if you had a favorite of, of the different roles that you worked. So yeah, so I think good, I'll, I'll use the the job I kept for about a year. I, I kept for about a year before I got laid off as my examples here. I think it's probably really the only relevant one where I, I um, have a lot of like very strong examples to use here. Uh, definitely the the high moment for me was, or like kind of the the best part of it was definitely the environment. Right, it was a bunch of um, you know just out of college students, like for the most part, doing a lot of the the bulk of the work, and then like a few uh, like more certified you know kind of software engineers doing a lot of the, the teaching the training and kind of like the like some of the back end upkeep of like some of the more difficult tasks it was kind of a fun environment where there was no expectation that we would know how to do everything uh and we just kind of came in and we were there to learn uh you know for the most part and i mean some people were obviously just there to to you know get paid and that, that's nothing wrong with that but a lot of us were there kind of like to learn the systems and kind of find out what was what was going on behind the scenes here and and I mean, also get paid, obviously, but, uh, it, you know, it was, it was a fun environment where we were learning and, uh, it had been set up not by my boss, but by my like, boss's boss to be a much more relaxed, like casual environment than you would expect of a typical, like big bank type environment, which is what it was, uh, where, you know, we could pull, you know, pranks and, and do, you know, kind of wild stuff. And, and, you know, that was totally fine. Right. Like, you know, one, one guy went on vacation for a week. And we replaced all of his his chair and all of his peripherals with like Hello Kitty stuff, right? You know, we replaced his chair, we replaced his keyboard, his mouse, his mouse pad, his monitors. Everything was Hello Kitty. 
And, you know, we took away his old stuff. He had nothing else. So he just had to use the Hello Kitty stuff. And, and you know, may, you know, who knows? He just pretended that he liked it. I, you know, I never really found out if, if he did or not. But, you know, we just kind of all laughed a lot. You know, we were all kind of having a great know time. who got you laid off. <laughs> <laughs> he got yeah, his revenge. So, you know, we, we, were, we had a great time doing stuff like that. Uh, and so the environment was really fun. Uh, the obvious downside here is like, I definitely, you know, not just during the layoff, but I definitely overall just kind of felt like the company as a whole, not necessarily the division I worked for, but the company as a whole definitely just kind of felt like it treated us like, just kind of like contracts, like just kind of not really considered the people, like the, the people here are just like, and you know, you know, the department we were working for happened to be $14 million over budget. They just decided, eh, let's just lay off all the contractors and, and, you know, you're gone. Right. You know, I happened to have a small amount of forewarning from someone who was in the know, but like, it, you know, it, it was kind of like a deal where, Hey, end of the day, you know, I, I had no warning. There's kind of, you know, they, they come up to us at the X and they're like, Hey, give us your laptops. You're done here. You don't work here anymore. You know, it's, it's over. Uh, and it was just kind of like, okay, I guess we are done. It's, it's over. Right. We had some fun, you know, in this, in this office environment and it's over now. Uh, that was definitely not um, a great experience and definitely the low, like definitely the low point. Um, definitely something that caused me to reconsider where I, like what I was doing and where I was going, which again, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but it's like, that's kind of where, like, that's kind of how I ended up um, getting interested in, in applying to Riot and, and going over there. Yeah. And that's a, a depressingly common story in contract work where companies really, and not to say all companies, but more companies than should treat them as disposable and and you really don't get a lot of forewarning when your position is ending um so it's it's it can be difficult to contract work tends to be a lot of people's entry into both tech and game dev um i can it can sort of abuse that that level of naivety to um sort of get more out of less and not to say everyone does that, but it's something to be very aware of when you're considering a contract role because, like like Nick said, they can sort of just take your laptop away at the end of the day and then you're out of luck and good luck uh, getting an unemployment. <laughs> so. Yep, yeah. And, and like to be clear, like I, I didn't know this at the time, but I've definitely learned a lot more over time as I've kind of spent some time researching the subjects. Like I know partially why, you know, a lot of companies tend to be so, you know, brutal to their contractors. It's not, you know, in some cases it's, it is legitimately that they just don't care about the contractors. Right. And in some cases it is because uh, there actually have been not just lawsuits, but actually successful lawsuits where companies that treated their contractors too similarly to regular employees have actually been sued for, Hey, you, you have to give these people full benefits. They are actually full employees. And, and, you know, then it's kind of like, well, the contractors get everything, um, you know, they're, they're contractors and, you know, they're getting paid the contract rate, but they also actually also have to have the benefits because you're treating them like real employees. And so from the, the perspective of the company, it can be dangerous to be uh, too like to treat your, your regular employees and your contractors too similarly, right? Not, not saying that, you know, not like trying to be like a corporate shill here no, or anything no, like okay. that, you know, obviously there are unfathomable numbers of instances of, of companies just like unduly being like very cruel to their contractors. But this is why some of this can come up or like some of this can be like particularly sharp uh, is that when the companies can get too close, I believe the the most recent one of the, or the most recent big example of this, I think was actually, I, I forget whether it's Microsoft or IBM, some big tech company, but basically 
they were treating their workers and their their contractors or their full-time employees and their contractors very similarly and they ended up getting uh you know losing huge amounts of money over this and then of course uh you know regardless of whether you know it was right or not uh this of course causes them to course correct into a position where suddenly the contractors are are not treated like people at all right yeah and that that tends to be a very uh reliable aspect of of companies where it's i don't think anybody would imagine that companies do things out of malice it's usually just the bottom line and that's what's important so there's always a story behind every single thing like that where it's like obviously they're just doing what they can to save the most money and that can be either a good or a bad thing um depending on who you ask if you're a stockholder or not yeah um so getting out of the depressing world of contract software engineering how okay how do you go from being a soft contract software engineer to moving to Los Angeles and getting a job as a game analyst on Riot? Uh, so I guess I've kind of told part of the story, but not the full one. Essentially, when I got laid off, what I did was I made sure I was secured and like, you know, make basically I made, I made sure I was set up to be able to return to, to software engineering if I really needed to. Right. It's like if, if I if I had become desperate, I ran out of money, you know, and nothing is working out. I could have gotten it, you know, gotten my job. In fact, I was actually literally several months later offered my job back at the same company, which I thought was kind of insulting. But, um, you know, I, I, I kind of set things up. I, I did some extra certifications to make sure that uh, I would be able to return if I needed to. And then what I started doing was I just started applying. You know, I, I started asking people, asking around to people that I knew and looking around just on places on the Internet, honestly, to look at. Hey, what jobs do I think would be fun? Like that I think I could actually reasonably do. Like what what jobs would be cool and interesting and might have a fun environment? Um, and I applied for a lot of stuff that at the time I thought was like wild, crazy out there. And most of the time I applied, I didn't get you know I didn't get anything back. Right? You know, I heard nothing. But I happened to apply to Riot, uh, and not only did I get an interview, I went straight through the interview process. And this was back in the day when Riot actually did in person interviews for everyone. So they flew me out to Los Angeles. Uh, I did the in-person, the absolutely brutal, like six hour interview panel. Um, you know, I'm glad we really, we don't do that anymore. The hiring process is very different. This was absolutely awful. Uh, I did this very brutal interview panel and I got the job and I did have a couple of other offers on the table, but I felt like, like, but I felt like pretty definitively the, the game analysis position, uh, you know, which it wasn't what it was called back then. Right. But that's really what we were doing the whole time. Uh, but the, I felt like the game analysis position was not just the one that was most likely to be fun for me, but the one that was like most likely to lead into something that was going to work long-term, right? There are lots of other things that I could have gone for that I think might've been interesting for a while for me. But since I was really looking to to try and set up something that would work long-term, I was kind of thinking like, I don't know if I can do this game analysis thing forever or if I even want to, but I think there's probably something in game dev for me. And I think pretty quickly after getting there, I was like, yeah, I, I do eventually want to move to game design. That is something I'm very interested in. And, and, you know, here I am, you know, five and a half years after getting hired at Riot, and, and I've I have made it there. Uh, so I think that was really what motivated me to do pick Riot over the other options was not only feeling like it was more likely to be better in the short term, but in particular feeling like it was better, to, you know, more likely to pay off in the long term. And do you feel like your experience as a software engineer had much bearing on on your role as a uh, as a game analysis, a game analyst? 
There are some things that definitely had some crossover. Uh, the fact that I was baseline familiar with a lot of the QA processes from obviously interacting with QA processes as a software engineer at a tech company, I was very familiar, you know, much more familiar than the average game analysis person coming in uh, with the whole QA process, uh, with the whole like, you know, essentially tech development process, right? Game dev is definitely different from regular tech, but ultimately the, the baseline process, a lot of the baseline processes are very similar. And so, you know, I had been a part of that process from one side and then game analysis is a different part of that process in, in games. And so having kind of a different perspective of, of being in a different spot there was definitely relevant uh, and something that definitely helped me out. There was also talk, you know, this was something that was like original, like this is like some really old, like deep lore of like, I was originally when I first joined Riot, there, was, there were some plans for me to automate some, some testing things because I did have experience doing some uh, testing automation. Uh, that never ended up happening for a bunch of different reasons, mostly that I was just way too busy. Like I just really didn't have time to do any of this stuff and it was kind of a time consuming process. Uh, but, uh, and so like there, it was planned for it to be even more relevant that I was kind of a full blown you know, engineer that they were hiring essentially. Uh, it ended up not being not like daily relevant necessarily, but kind of more just is kind of tangentially like, uh, you know, indirectly relevant in that I had a different perspective on things or I had a, I had the benefit of an additional perspective, I think, on tech than than most people that uh, started off in game analysis did. Definitely. And did you have any interest in engineering at Riot? I initially was curious about it. Um, I, it was something that I definitely, you know, I definitely had some recruiters uh, very interested in that. Uh, you know, they're the recruiters, especially the engineering recruiters, can be pretty aggressive about looking for people because obviously that is one of the more desired like more sparse positions. It can be hard to get people to fill those spots. Uh, it's something that I definitely had, you know, there was more, I would say there was more interest from the people looking to hire engineers than there was me looking to, to investigate the positions. I'm not saying there was no interest on my part, uh, but it was something that, uh, you know, maybe if I had never done it, the engineering, like software engineering in tech at all, uh, it's something that I might've been able to enjoy long-term, but I definitely got very soured on the whole tech you know, engineering prospect when, uh, you know, when I did go through the the couple of years I did that um, before I joined Riot. And so the actual process in games definitely, I, I'm sure would be much more enjoyable for me, but I just think I'm a lot, uh, I, I much, much, much prefer uh, doing the design side of things. And even the game analysis side of things, I think I much prefer, honestly, over the engineering, even, even if like at a base level, like, in terms of my qualifications, my certifications, like I'm probably more qualified to be an engineer than I was to be a game analysis, uh, you know, a game analysis expert. But at the same time, there really aren't currently, you know, because it's such a new, like kind of rel like relatively new field. There really aren't that kind of certification or anything like that for game analysis. So I don't know if that comparison really even makes that much sense. Yeah, no, I understand that completely. Um, okay, so we've been tiptoeing it around quite a bit and we've been talking about it quite a bit. What does a game analyst do and what was that title actually before i know you said the titles changed and game analyst is like kind of more relevant to what it is now but what was that title when you first joined so i believe the title we had when i first joined was qa analyst i think it's been a while that would be a better question for I don't i don't even know who like maybe afic or something someone like that i i, I legitimately yeah, it's been it's been so long. I legitimately do not recall um, 
what the original title was. I mean, the original title of the team was the playtest team, right? And and the reason why it was changed was kind of there's this there's this implication, right? And there's there's this like who knows if this is really a myth or not. I I legitimately don't know. And a lot of people um, who work in game dev now, you know, it, it is you know potentially before their time even. Uh, it's like there's this myth of like oh there's like a team at these game companies that just sits in a room and just plays games and just like says whether they like it or not, right? It's like that's not true. That's not real, right? It's like that, like the, and the whole idea of being called the playtest team kind of perpetuated the like this this like myth of oh yeah, they're just people who playtest, and that's not really what it was ever about. It was never you know playtesting was always just a tool to accomplish a goal, right? The goal of the game analysis team, the reason why it's called the game analysis team, is the output of the team is the analysis, right? It's it's not just the understanding of the game and the you know the assessment of the risk to the game of the changes that you're making or the content that you're adding. Um, but it's also the communication of of those things, right? It's, it's not just, I understand the game. It is, I understand the game and I can also help you understand the game. If, you know, and the you is any team that they happen to be working with, right? It could be, uh, you know, designers is obviously the most common, you know, teams of designers is obviously the most common instance here, but this could be anybody from a producer to, uh, you know, a business manager or, or whatever, right? So anyone who needs to understand the context of the game, that's who game analysis, the game analysis team is going to interact with. And their goal is to help uh, increase their understanding and, and ability and, and assess the risks and assess, like be able to predict outcomes uh, that it, are going to happen when you make changes or make additions to the game, right? It's, it's all about, uh, uh, QA has these principles of uh, verification versus, uh, or sorry, uh, qualitative versus quantitative QA. Um, and most traditional QA is exclusively, uh, uh, sorry, it's, there's terms are so similar. Um, <laughs> most traditional QA is exclusively, uh, quantitative, right? It is, does this perform the action, right? It, it is, it is counting the number of things that there are, right? Does the, do, do the, are the features present, right? Do the features do exactly what they're supposed to do, um, Game analysis, though, at Riot specifically, where it's a QA discipline, which is not the case at every uh, company that has like game analysis type teams, by the way. Uh, game analysis is actually the opposite, where it is qualitative uh, QA, right? It is, does this feel good? Is this going to be better for the game, right? Uh, what risks does this, like, what, what risks do we incur here in terms of not just the game, but like player perception and things like this, right? And so there is a pretty big difference there um and that's really what game like what what attracted me to game analysis and what kept me there for four years right i worked on game analysis team for a long time um was the analysis work is really really interesting but i actually think it's also really really uh the the probably like to me one of the the even i don't know if i'd say it's more or less fun than the, the doing the actual analysis is the communication aspect of like not just being able to understand it yourself but making sure that you can actually also lead other people to the same understanding yeah. And okay. So this is a really difficult question for a role in game dev, especially a role in Riot. Um I'll just take the best answer you can give. What was the day in the life of a game analyst? Like what was your typical day kind of look like? So for game analysis, the day in the life back in the olden days, and and I I make a distinction here, we definitely changed up a decent number of processes after after COVID and and I'm not I did. I was on the team for a while during COVID, right? To be clear, but uh, I'm sure the processes are even more different now. So I'll talk more specifically to like the the days when I first joined. Um, you know, the first couple of years I was on the team, um, because I think that's the most that's the time when it was the most clear cut 
uh, the schedule started to kind of stratify amongst different people and, and things got very different. So I'll talk more about the, the like kind of more clear cut, like old style schedule, which was there's four playtest slots a day, right? And a slot doesn't necessarily mean there's playtesting, right? It, or it doesn't necessarily specify what you're testing, right? It could be, you know, PC League, it could be Wild Rift, it could be a heads down slot where we've decided we've we've built up too much uh, work and we need time to, to write up feedback or talk to designers or whatever. Uh, but there's four playtest slots a day, you know, there's one in the morning, there's two in the afternoon, and then there's one in the evening, right? And the block between the, the afternoon and the evening slots is typically where you're kind of either having meetings, you know, you're going and talking to uh, designers about, you know, projects that you're both working on, or you're having, you know, kind of unscheduled feedback, you're just going to a designer and you're saying, hey, man, you know, uh, Pike, you know, he's killing everybody, you know, I, I think this isn't cool, you know, the, you know, you would obviously use better words than that, you know, use better terminology, you'd say things, you know, especially with the more modern uh, terminology that they have, you'd say things like, uh, you know, I think Vex uh, has you know, too many, uh, too, too many favorable matchups in the mid lane, you know, she has, she's, she's, she's too generic. She's, uh, you know, et cetera, right. Or like, oh, you know, she doesn't have any pro facing counters or, you know, it, you, there's all sorts of great terminology that's been invented over time here. Uh, and that free space is, it, it, it really was kind of a lot about making that free space work for you, where you had this block of a, of a few hours, essentially in the middle of the day, because, you know, it's an eight hour work day. Four of those hours are essentially dedicated to playtest slots, and you probably need some time in, in most cases to prep for the playtest slots. You might need some time after to write feedback. And so you're kind of talking about like two to three hours to do most of kind of like the work, right? Where the rest of the time is is dedicated to generating the content that you need to analyze. And then the rest of it is, well, maybe you need to watch VODs to, to have a better understanding of what exactly happened, right? Maybe you need to uh, watch back your, you know, your morning VOD in the afternoon to... Uh, make sure that you understand exactly why, you know, Vex top lost lane or whatever, right? I, you know, and, and like all the things that you're testing and understanding the test cases. And maybe you need to prep tests for the next day, right? Maybe you need to understand exactly what test cases you need. Maybe you need to talk to the designer, see what exactly the goals are for what you're working on. Um, and so the the time, the open time was very flexible, but it all relates back to the same thing. It's making sure you're testing the right stuff and then making sure you're getting value out of the things that you are testing. Right. That, that's really what it was all about is there's the testing, there's, you know, kind of before the testing, there's setting it up properly to make sure that you're going to get, you know, valuable information out of it. And then there's extracting that information and kind of finally, you know, transmitting that information to the people that need it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, to at least initially to get into this role, you had to be a pretty high level League of Legends player, right? You'd be pretty good at the game. At the time, the minimum ranking, I believe, was Diamond 3. Um, this was back when Diamond 5 still existed. I'm not 100% sure that's true, actually. I, I, it, again, it's been a long time, right? It's been five and a half years. And, you know, if you include my application time since, especially back in the day, even still to the, you know, now applications take a very long time to get through it, right? But back in the day, it was way longer. I think I, it was like six months after I applied, right? Before the time I got the job. Um, so it was, it's been a long time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think... Thinking back, um, I think generally speaking, it's, uh, oh, hold on. Sorry. I lost my train of thought there. What, what was the original question? <laughs> sorry. Uh, you had to be a fairly, a fairly good player to get onto the yes. game analysis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so I was, I, I got sidetracked thinking about the, um, some of the, like some of the newer stuff that the game analysis team has been doing. And I, I've been working with them cause they've been. Uh, cause at the beginning of the year, they're 
new Wild Rift Gat analysts. So that's been really awesome. But uh, yeah, so originally it was, it was definitely there was specification of high ranks, but and, and like a lot of people had this perception, you know, publicly the perception was like, oh, they just hire random high elo people. And it's like, that was never the case, right? It's always, uh, that was a minimum requirement, but there were other minimum requirements on the communication skills and on the analytical skills, you know, being the two most important. There are other skills too, right? But those are the two that are most important here where needed to be a baseline expectation that you would be able to get, like extract the value of the information from the things and, and be able to set up the tests properly on your own and be able to understand hey, you know, what type of test cases would we need to get different information out of the tests, all that sort of stuff. And secondarily, of course, the other really important part of the job that you would be able to communicate that information effectively to um, designers or, you know, producers or whoever need to have this information, right? And so, yes, it was true that the ranking was definitely a requirement, but there were definitely also other pretty tough requirements to make, which is why, even though that position, you know, every time one of those went open, they're, there are hundreds of applications, right? I mean, I, I strongly encourage you if you're going to have AFIC on the the this this asking about how many applications he gets for for an hour, like a typical gap position, um, or at least you know even if he's not willing to say the exact number, ask him like you know well, scale of you. one to ten, how overwhelmed are you? It's like a thirteen, right? It's, it's a lot, um, but you know we at the end of the day we don't even end up with uh, you know tons of candidates that were you know sometimes we do end up with lots of candidates that we're thrilled with, but. That wasn't the typical typical experience where huge batch of candidates, we narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down. And then we're like, wow, well, these two people are great. Let's hire these. And, you know, it, it turns out, you know, cross-referencing skill in three different areas, right? Game skill, analytical skill, and uh, communication skill. And these things might be related, right? But they're not directly correlated. Uh, asking for all three of those was that really asking a lot from the applicant pool, for sure. Definitely. Um, do you remember how... I know you said you played the amateur team. Do you remember how high ranked you were at the time? I'm assuming you were high diamond at least, right? I believe at the like the instant at the moment I got the offer, I believe that I was diamond one. I might have been, I might have been in masters. I don't recall. Um, but yeah, it was, it was Master, generally I don't think masters was even around back then, was it? It was, yeah. Masters still existed back then, or Masters yeah. did exist back then. Um, Challenger started in season three, I want to say, and I think Masters was like four or five. But okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Masters was around, I believe, at that time. I was either it's it's tough to recall. I, I know there was there was like there were definitely several Masters promos around that time that I you know of which several which I failed. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it you know it was definitely a time that was uh, interesting for me where. I was kind of in, in the amateur scene, the people that knew, you know, I, it's not to say that I was like super well-known or anything, but I had, especially being a top laner, which was something that was like sorely lacking in the, the NA amateur scene back then. I had offers, you know, multiple times for you know, legitimately great team, like challenger teams that were going to play in the, in the challenger circuit to try and get into relegations. I had multiple offers that, of people like, do you want to play top lane for us in the upcoming, like in the upcoming like challenger circuit? And I always said no, because I was really never something I was that interested in. Uh, but it was like, I was, you know, I knew applying to Riot would be a little weird because I, I didn't know, like, how much did they care about, you know, individual skill. And it's like, turns out, you know, it was mostly a thresholding thing where it's like, you need to be able to uh, execute at a high level and you need to be able to compete in the playtests, right? They've obviously, you know, in the past, they've had lower requirements, right? This is before my time, obviously, but in the past they'd had lower requirements and they had issues where people couldn't hang in the playtests and they'd actually lower playtest quality. And so mostly the reason for that requirement, at least at the time, right? Obviously things have changed. I don't know if 
if the requirements the same or you know again this is stuff that questions that would be better for apic who obviously is more in tune with the modern state of these things but at the time it was mostly a hey we need people at a minimum who will be able to play in games with challenger players and not like feed their brains out and lower the playtest quality right and and so mostly it was a preserve the sanctity of the playtest environment and make sure that there's not like incessant you know huge advantages being generated on one side because obviously you know the average live game yes there are sometimes huge advantages but it's not like every game there's a 14-0 draven in it right it, you know that's that's not every game experience and so it was mostly about being able to accurately replicate the live environment with high skill play not necessarily about everyone is challenger or anything like that because that's certainly not the case right you know i've never made i've never made challenger myself and and i was totally fine on the team yeah and i think that's another thing that people may have like a, a perception about it's like if these people who are on this team are playing so much League of Legends a day that really takes out a lot of the motivation to actually play in solo queue and, and achieve those high ranks. So it, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when people go go through and like they try to identify people on these teams. They're like, well, they're only silver five. They're only a gold one or whatever. Um, I think it's very important to to realize that when you do something as a job, it can sort of take away a lot of that motivation to go out after your eight hour work day and be like, Hey, I'm going to grind nine solo queue games in a row and trying to get to this promo level. Um, so that's something for that sure. I, I wish more people were cognizant of. Yeah, for sure. Definitely working on stuff can, can very much warp the way that you interact with it outside of work. Like it, it, it is very significant. And so for some people it doesn't, right. There are people out there like um, Koyonku or Afik actually, who they spam games like an unbelievable like legitimately, like when I say, when most people say unbelievable, they just mean like, you know, they're just saying like an, ex an extreme amount. When I say unbelievable, I mean like I legitimately to this day, like can't believe how many games that they play, like both of them. Like, and it's not just them. There are other people like this at Riot, but it's like, that's definitely the minority. Like that's definitely like a, an unusual um, reaction. And it's like most people, they go to work for eight hours, right? And especially on GAT where, you know, you're testing probably, you know, on average, like two two plus hours, you're probably playing two plus hours of league a day. The idea of like going home and then grinding more league is not something that's super sustainable long-term. You know, there will be bursts of this, like, right? A good example of this recently is like August, right? At the end of season, you know, if, you, if anyone watches his stream, uh, he made a big push for diamond at the end of the season, right? It's like, do I think he's not a diamond level player because he wasn't diamond the whole season? It's like, no, I don't. I actually think he's always been a diamond level player. It's just, he didn't really put in the time or the effort to, to push to diamond. Right. And there's lots of examples of like, like that lots of times across, uh, you know, lots of, of people who work in, in gameplay. And then also just like entirely on a separate point, it's also the case that like, it's a very minority of, of roles at riot or games in general, where the skill, like skill at the game is really even a critical factor. Um, definitely it is for GAT. Uh, and I think it is relevant for like the SRT balance designers as well. Like there's definitely some relevance for skill, but it's like if a champion designer is silver or, or, you know, gold or whatever, it's like, it, does this actually affect their ability to make champions? It's like, I don't think it does. Yeah. And for anyone watching the stream, uh, my webcam just died. So apologies for that, <laughs> but oh, we'll continue on because we're professionals. Um, so, okay. Getting back on course. And sort of getting a little bit more relevant or a little bit more recent to hopefully um, sort of satiate the people who who came here for more Wild Rift content. What incentivized you to switch from the league team over to the Wild Rift team? 
So some of it, uh, I'll like be straight up here. It's like some of it is opportunistic, right? Wildrift had a designer position open at the time and um, it happened to be one that I applied to and got the job. However, I will also say I was pretty choosy in the designer positions that I applied to, right? There were lots of designer positions open in the four years uh, that I was on the game analysis team. And I only applied to about, I think, 20% of them. Um, I did apply a few times before I actually ended up getting the, getting a job that I, I accepted on Wild Rift. But uh, the big thing that I think pushed me to Wild Rift more so than uh, any other position that I could have gone to is basically twofold. Number one, uh, I didn't want to risk if I moved to PC, right? I, lo I love PC League, but I had a fear that if I went to design on PC, right? I'd spent four years at this point working with PC designers, seeing how they solve problems. I was a bit afraid if I went to PC, I would just end up replicating a lot of the things that I'd seen and not really doing things, um, you know, on my own, kind of just repl replicating the same processes I'd seen before. Uh, and so I was a little bit afraid of, of like, would I actually develop my own skills or would I just be trying to replicate exactly what other people were doing um, if I went to PC? Uh, the other reason, you know, thing that compelled me to go to, to Wild Rift would it kind of, at a, at a kind of an interesting like juxtaposition on that you know same principle was Wild Rift similar enough to PC League where having four years of of experience working with designers on PC, uh, I had a lot of like relevant cross examples and like relevant experience and like knowledge of how PC had dealt with these problems or PC had you know what things PC had attempted to deal with different problems in their own space, uh, and so. The short answer or like the, the summary answer I guess I could give is like it was similar enough that I felt like I had a very significant advantage, which I think paid out really well. Right? I, I felt like I was able to join Wild Rift and immediately be very, very, very relevant, very useful as a designer, which typically is not the pattern, right? You know, not expected that especially new game designers are typically immediately relevant to their projects. Uh, but uh, I also wasn't at risk of falling into the same, you know, kind of the same traps or the same patterns that I'd seen other people fall into on PC or even not necessarily like traps or patterns, but more so wasn't at risk of just kind of following the same uh, paradigms that, you know, other designers had followed on PC. Um, so that was kind of one of the, the big things on top of the fact that also water was just a different game and I'd been working on PC for four years and that was, uh, you know, I was interested to try something else for sure. Yeah, I imagine, and especially because you joined pretty early on in the Wild Rift uh, development cycle, right? So it's interesting uh, when, so I joined relatively early after the game had gone live. However, as on the game analysis team, I did actually do a little bit of uh, work with um, the Wild Rift team on the initial versions of the game. I actually don't know if this has ever been publicly discussed, but like the very first version of Wild Rift, uh, the first group to test this was uh, like, besides like the people who were working on it, of course, the first external group to test this was actually the game analysis team. Um, and so we actually did have a lot of involvement with Wild Rift's like very early versions uh, from the game analysis perspective, where one of the big things they were concerned about was like, does this actually feel like, you know, does this have the league moments? Does this actually feel like League of Legends on mobile? Like, are the controls good? Right, they had a lot of a lot of like qualitative questions that they were asking us um, at the time, and so I was involved in sort of a small way in Wild Rift's early development. But yeah, when I joined up with Wild Rift, it was 
fairly early on, not crazy early, right? I, I believe at this point, Wilders had been out in North America for like six months or so by the time I, I joined the, the team. Uh, but it had, it had been live in other regions for a lo- for longer than that, a bit longer than that. Um, so it was a relatively newer like live game, but I had been a little bit involved in kind of the earlier process when it was more in development. Okay. And what was... Okay, so so your role at, at on the league team was the game analysis game analyst team. What was that transition over to Wild Rift like? Like, was it the same kind of work, or was it completely different? It's very different, right? So, I will say this is something there's some like some debate over, right? Like I was talking about earlier, there are other companies who treat the game analysis type of work very differently. As a direct example, here the analog team. At, a, at like Wizards of the Coast, the company that makes Magic the Gathering, for example, is called Play Design. And instead of being a team of QA, they're actually a team of designers that essentially fill the same role as what the game analysis team does on PC, as well as uh, the uh, balance pod on the Summoner's Rift team, right? So they're the people that not only do the analysis work, but they also uh, make the adjustments themselves. So it's a little bit different, it's a very different way to approach it. Um, not necessarily more or less valid. It's just a different approach. Uh, But I would consider game analysis to be a subset of game design skills, but it is definitely a very different process where on the game analysis team, you are there to inform, like ultimately you're there to provide information and to assess risk. uh, And you're not there to make final calls on stuff. The designer, on the other hand, conversely is like, they're the one who is making the actual calls. They're the one who's making the actual uh, iterations and doing like making the actual decisions. Uh, they're not the ones who are assessing the risks of what they're doing necessarily, right? Um, they're not the ones who, like they are the ones who take responsibility for their actions, of course, uh, but they're not the people who have to assess, hey, this has a, you know, there's a, there's a chance that this item combined with this item is, you know, too problematic for the game or like unsustainable for, you know, these this, this class of champions or, or whatever, right? You know, things like that. Um, it's more of a, uh, in some ways it's more of an executive position, but I would actually say in a lot of ways, it's more of a, uh, how do I put this more of like, a um, the game analysis side is more like someone who is there to understand and the game designer is there more to do, if that makes sense. I I think you did a pretty good job at, at explaining that. I think there's definitely some some nuances there for what the differences are. And it actually kind of leads into my next question. Has this role changed a little bit since since you've joined Wild Rift? Because obviously the game as a whole, being an offshoot of League of Legends to a, to a mobile a mobile game must be very difficult to like sort of work off of those established principles, but also kind of set up your own principles to really make it a different game because people who haven't played wild rift uh, may not realize this wild rift and league of legends share a lot of similarities but they are also very different games um they play very differently obviously there's the control input it obviously makes a huge difference and just sort of that the base level of, of of what to expect out of the player is a little different so has that role changed a lot since you've joined yeah for sure it's changed a lot right um when i first joined the original like some of the original Wild Rift like design architects were still there, right? Wavebreak, for example, who was originally my my boss when I first joined, or well, I guess not directly my boss, but like the design lead on the on systems and balance when I first joined. He was one of the people who built Wild Rift. Um, 
And they had lots of plans, right? Lots of things that they'd established, you know, before the game even launched as, hey, we would like to revisit this after the game launches, you know, with better, you know, more perfect information. Because, of course, you know, you, you can do a lot of theoretical testing. You can do lots of user testing and, and you know, all sorts of playtesting, you know, external and to internal playtesting. But ultimately, you're going to get way more information in the first hour a game is live about how players interact with the game than you could get in, you know, years of, of internal and external playtests, right? So you're going to have way better information about the way that players interact, the way that players treat the game, the way that players think about the game uh, once it's out. And so they kind of made these plans where, uh, hey, with better information, we would like to revisit, you know, these systems, you know, uh, you know that we think maybe could be improved or maybe just were made with really incomplete information and, and may not be ideal for the, the game, you know, going forward, right? And so when I first joined Wild Rift, the original plan was we were going to very slowly go through and update each individual class item system one by one, right? And you can see this if you look at the early patches of Wild Rift, you can see there's an AD carry item update. This is before I joined the team. There was a enchanter item update. And if you look at the time after I joined, you can actually still see sort of one of these, right? You can see part of one of these, which is the fighter item update that was in 3.1, which was uh, earlier this year, right? 3.1 was the second patch of, of uh, uh, the current year. Um, but things changed a lot uh, for systems and balance in particular, but not just SNB. Honestly, Wild Rift as a whole, uh, and this changed our role, like my role in particular, quite a bit when after the game had been out for a while, uh, the insights people, the data science people, did a big investigation into how players interacted with the game, right? They had lots of information, you know, the game had been out for like, at this point for, you know, months or years in, in the region, or months or about a year, I think, in the longest running regions. Um, and essentially what they came back with was, well, number one, players just want more systems changes, right? That was one big thing that we got out of this was like, the way we were doing things was, uh, it was a good way to get high quality, you know, item systems in the game but it wasn't a good way to ship a lot of content, right? It was very slow, very slow process to, to update entire classes at once. Um, and one of the big things we took away from this was like players just want more systems content. And players also want a lot of, you know, systems content that's different from the systems content that we're talking about, right? It's like, you know, players were really focused on runes, even though that's not something that the original designers really focused very much on, right? And so we changed our approach pretty dramatically where previously we'd been focusing very, very, very heavily kind of tunneling, honestly, on these individual class item updates and thinking, look, at the end of the day, when we're finally finished all these class item updates, we'll have great items for all the different classes, right? And what we ended up doing instead was just saying, you know what, we're just going to start turning it, like, we're going to start not worrying about, you know, shipping content for particular classes. And we're just going to start making what we think the best, most important content is that we should ship right now. Uh, and so that changes a lot about how we work on SNB, right? Instead of very slowly you know, building up a big design document with all sorts of cross references of like, oh, this item is going to interact with this item. And then this item is going to interact with this item in this other system, or this item is going to cover, you know, this strength for this class and going to enhance this thing, et cetera, right? Like all these like much more complicated uh, designs and very, very complicated systems uh, kind of, inter you know, interacting with each other. Instead, what we said was, okay, what is the biggest, you know, what, what do we see as the biggest concern for the players right now, like immediately? And how can we address this meaningfully in, you know, in a, in a patch soon, right? Not necessarily always the next patch, right? Sometimes we needed more time. For example, we wanted to do support items for a while and we didn't get them until 3.4, which is a relatively speaking more recent patch. It's not the most recent patch, but it's the second to most recent big patch. Uh, 
you know, we want to do sport edits for a while and it took us longer, but that was something that we wanted to address, right? Uh, and so the dev process is very different where previously systems was, was you know, when I was talking earlier about like balance versus systems, talking about how balance is like short term and, and systems is typically like long or medium term. We turned a lot of our, hey, systems is very long-term process, you know, when I first joined. Now, a lot of the systems work is actually, you know, to be honest, more of a medium uh, term project where it's like, some systems content we turn around in a very short amount of time, right? An example of this is uh, I added Kraken Slayer as a keystone rune in Wild Rift. Uh, I made that design and we locked it in in less than 48 hours. And then, you know, less than 24 hours after that, we had our first prototype in for, uh, you know, first prototype in for testing to make sure the tuning was good, right? And it's like, that's the kind of thing that we would never have done in our old system when we were just kind of going through the item systems and, and updating them one by one. But we kind of, essentially did a bunch of research and asked the players, Hey, what is it that you're, you know, what is it that you actually want? Like what, what would make you happy? And they said more content faster. And we said, okay, let's do it. So how often does wild rift actually patch? Cause I'm not familiar with that. I know league patches on generally a two week cycle. So it's a complicated question because our patch cycle is very different in some ways where there are what we call content patches. And then there are, I don't know if we have an official name for them, but they're like, lettered patches basically we have like 3.0 3.1 3.2 but then there's also 3.1a 3.1b 3.1c these patches are smaller in nature the the lettered patches they typically just have some balance adjustments the content patches right the numbered patches these are really big updates that are roughly every two months and then we do some smaller balance updates in these uh, patches which is a very di interesting different structure uh, to the patches comparatively to PC where they just patch every two weeks. And if you have a good, you know, systems con piece of content that's done, you just put it in whatever patch you want, right? Whereas we actually literally cannot do that, right? Our numbered patches are the ones that go through the app store and like Google approval and things like this. And so if we want to ship a champion, it has to be in a numbered patch, right? If we want to ship a big systems change that has like a new item icon or something like that, it has to be in a, in a numbered patch because of the, the mobile environment. Uh, and so... That system is also one of the things that encourages us to do this kind of like different style of work than both PC League and also than the original plans for Wild Rift. Do you prefer one system to another? Like I know you're probably a little biased working on Wild Rift now to League, but if you had the, the, the possibility to sort of work in the same way where it's a two-week cycle, that's it. You're, you're, it has to be done by that or it's going into the next patch. Or do you actually kind of prefer the longer cycle between patches? Because it gives you more time to kind of get things right and perfect them. So if I were to pick and choose like what I wanted from both systems, I would love to have the robustness and the consistency of PC's patch system and the flexibility of PC's patch system and also the batching of Wild Rift. Like I actually think, and this is something PC's experimented with or, or like considered doing before, but hasn't really committed to it is like, batching you know more content into a smaller number of patches where you could make it in pc so that it's expected every two months is like a big bigger patch right where you might have the expectation is that you have more systems content in it and i think there's something that's really awesome about this where by batching a lot of cool stuff in in each you know in these in these uh particular moments you have these big spikes of change where there's a good reason for you know every player to come back and play right whereas in PC, something that can happen, right? I'm not saying this happens that often, but like something that can happen is like you're a random mid lane player and top lane gets a big TP change or whatever. And it's like, if you're not a mid lane player that plays TP or, or you're just like an AD carry, that's like, that's kind of a whatever systems change for you, right? If, if, they, if 
Riot has changed TP to be, you know, the the like current or like the unleashed TP or whatever, right? It's like that's not a very interesting systems change for you, right? But by batching the patches together, we can kind of make it very, very likely, if not almost guaranteed, that there is a meaningful systems change in every patch for al for almost everyone. And even if it doesn't, you know, directly affect you, because there's so many system changes that affect other people, they're going to like indirectly affect you, right? It's like, you know, even if you are like using a recent Wild Rift example, even if on the current patch, you're a support player who's not going to build any of the, the items that we added in 3.5, you're still going to play with some AD carries that are buying Lord Dominics. You're going to play with some junglers who are pathing differently because of the new jungle, right? You're going to uh, play with uh, some people who are, who are buying the new Horizon Focus in mid lane, right? You know, there's all sorts of big differences you'll see, and they're much more noticeable when they're batched like this, right? Whereas the the way that PC kind of drips the content, right? And I actually think this is kind of similar to PC's process where before League of Legends existed, nobody did this model of patching every two weeks with a big preseason every year, right? This is like an unprecedented model. I actually think Wild Rift has kind of like refined this further where it's like, well, I think you actually could do preseason type like batched patches a little bit more frequently than what PC currently does. Like I think the actual old system with preseason midseason actually was better than the current system. The reason why it wasn't great was because of esports, which obviously there's, you know, some some trade-offs being made there. Uh, but I actually think the Wild Rift version of batching is really nice. However, that having been said, working on mobile, you know, the fact that we are forced into this model and if we want to ship a systems change like right now because we think it's just like that important, we kind of can't. Um, that part's not great. And so if I were picking and choosing the best parts of each, it's like I would take PC's patch, you know, infrastructure with the structure of Wild Rift, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think I think that's a very nuanced answer where you, obviously there's a lot of benefits and, and negatives to both systems. I wanted to unpack something that you said in there real quick, but I actually had another question because um, I'm pretty ignorant on on the way that server patches work but i'm going to feign uh expertise and and sort of frame this as a question that the audience may want to know are you able to make balance changes on on wild rift without going through the process of like going through a, a big app store update like are you able to make small changes to the game without having to go through the whole rigmarole yes yeah, so surprisingly this is a common question that comes up for anyone who you know knows anything is interested in mobile games um I've, I've actually talked with a lot of people about this but the answer is the short answer is we do not have to go through the app store approval process to make a small balance patches those like a b and c patches those don't go through the whole like approval process because they don't contain any new content right they don't contain anything that could potentially change like the rating of the game or or impact the the like legality of it on the app store or whatever right or whatever it is they're checking for you know what you know who knows right um, because they're just numbers changes, right? Ultimately, you know, even, even if we're changing something that's a little bit, you know, more out there, like a range, it's still just ultimately a numbers change, right? It's, it's, we're not adding anything that they haven't seen before, right? You know, Wukong Q doing 10 more damage or whatever is not going to change the rating of the game or, or change anything that they care about, you know, that they're doing the app reviews for. Uh, and so we can make those changes server side. And then in some cases we'll push a small patch to the user, uh, which is usually for tooltip updates actually, uh, to make sure that their tooltips uh, like values align with what's on the server. Uh, because Wild Rift of course is server authoritative as you know, good games generally should be. Uh, <laughs> uh, the server is the one that determines how much damage your spells do, right? But you might have the wrong tooltips. And so there's a small push of data there usually, uh, but generally speaking, we can go through the, the balance process without needing to go through the full app store approval process. 
Yeah. And forgive me if this is a stupid question. Um, when you push those things, it doesn't actually end up being an update on the app store itself. Like you don't have to go through an update via the app store. It's that sort of thing. When you log into the game, it's like, Oh, we're updating and it patches sort of like a tiny bar at the bottom. Right. Yeah. It's an in-app update. I would love to tell you more about those, but to be honest, they're like well outside my area of expertise. So I know that, yeah, you're, you're totally correct. It is. I know what it's called. It's called an in-app update. I don't really know that much about how they work, but, uh, you know, yes, you are 100% right. It is not a full like app store down. Like, you know, you must download an update from the app store. It is you open the app and it tells you, hey, please hold on while we download, you know, 10 megabytes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's probably outside of the scope of this show anyway, but I was just curious. <laughs> um, oh, man. There was something I just wanted to ask about the whole the whole thing, but now I kind of forget what it is. Oh, 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 oh. Um, I lost it again. Okay, we're just go back to the doc, and then if I pull it back up, we can we can ask about it. So, absolutely. What are the teams on Wild Rift that you directly work with on on a week to week basis? So, the most frequent teams we interact with, probably unsurprisingly, number one is is Champions team. Um, we work with them a lot, right? They pass our, their champions to us for balance. We you know sometimes toss them back problems of like you know reworks, for example. You know, we relatively recently in three point four reworked Yumi. Uh, that was something where we had kind of an unsolvable or like from our perspective, unsolvable problem are in our hands um, in terms of balancing the character uh, or seems, balancing the champion. It seems to be and, consistent with the, the PC League of Legends experience as well. <laughs> yeah, so so basically we, we came, went to the champions team and we said, hey, we, you know, could you guys take a crack at making some major changes here to try and resolve these issues, right? And we list out our problems of like, look, player perception of the champion is that she's pretty frustrating and that she's very powerful. The reality is that she's actually quite weak. Um, you know, can you, can you take, and, and then, you know, there were, there were a list of other concerns, of course, the champions team had as well around like satisfaction of the champion and feeling like, um, you know, the mobile version of the champion didn't really live up to the fantasy that they were looking to, to exhibit in the champion. So they of course did their own work on that and they did a rework. And so there's, there's like some back and forth here where, Hey, you know, we weren't super happy with the live state of Yumi. And since S and B is the kind of the owners of the live environment, we're the stewards of it. Um, we are the ones who asked them to, to do the Yumi rework. Right. And, and, you know, it's not like champions can just go in and just be like, do whatever they want to their champions, right? It's like, we are the owners of the live environment. And so that is kind of our purview. Um, conversely, you know, they want to ship a champion because it's going to go in the live environment. They kind of need to toss that off to us. So like, uh, you know, recently, you know, I, I got tossed off. Um, what was the most, what was the champion I balanced the most recent patch of Kane uh, as an example of like the champion that we were just released in 3.5 um, got passed to me for balance. Uh, you know, I did some work on the champion, you know, we made some changes, uh, you know, working with uh, Rogue Fool over from Champions Team on Kane. Um, and that was, that was fine. Uh, the other, other teams that we interact with frequently, um, SNB in particular interacts with the uh, production team that runs patches. I actually don't even know if they have an official name. We just call them production. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that particular team has a specific name. If, if so, I'm sorry that I don't know it. Uh, but yeah, there's a production team that runs the patch structure. So you know, anytime we want to, you know, move a patch date, for example, or uh, do something different with the patches or whatever, you know, we have to talk to them. And, and even when we aren't, you know, moving things around, it's, it's you know, we generally talk to them a lot, making sure that our, our stuff goes in the right place, uh, making sure that our content is, you know, in at, at the right time, it's in the right build at the right time um, for them to, you know, kind of download it, ship it off to the App Store people or to, um, you know, package it up and, and get it in the hotfix patches, that kind of stuff. Um so those are the two, two teams we interact with by far the most frequently. Um, there's also some like kind of lower level interactions with other teams like maps and modes, for example. We definitely interact with some, uh, you know, the team that works on like ARAM and stuff like that. 
uh, on Wild Rift and uh, some of the other teams as well. You know, some of the teams that do the around game stuff, like around game content, like events uh, and things like that. We interact with them, you know, kind of in a minimal way because events don't typically have a huge impact on systems and balance. But there are there is a little bit of crossover there where you know sometimes we want to be aware of what they're doing or or something like that, right? You know, champions tend to work with them more frequently because they try to line up their champion releases with events and things like that. But um, there's a little bit of overlap there, you, you know, even if it's just partially because we work with champions so much. And this is this is a little outside the scope of of what I was thinking about talking in this conversation, but I'm, I'm interested to know, and you can stop me if this isn't something that you have experience in or are interested in talking about, but is it intimidating or is it is it hard to work on a game like Wild Rift that has such a strong basis on another game, on, a, on League of Legends PC, and then make these sort of like differences, like, because Wild Rift, like we said earlier, is a very different game than PC League. Um, do you find that that it that it's difficult to really make those changes to to end up being a different game, or when you see changes on PC League, you're like, okay, maybe we should do something like that. So I can tell you for sure that some designers can struggle with this. I don't think that I personally am one of them, but definitely there can be some. Uh, some people have, have definitely had some crises at, in the past where uh, they're like, oh, you know, are we sure that this is actually better than just copying whatever PC did here or, or whatever, right? And like, you can see this in the original design of the game, right? A lot of the items are like literally word, you know, word for word copies of the PC versions and, and, you know, things like this, right? You know, you look at like the original Umbro Blade, for example, and it's like that, that item has had no place in Wild Rift and that's why I removed it. Um, it, you know, but they copied the original thing word for word from Wild Rift and I'm sure that they, they were questioning whether that was the right thing to do at the time. Um, but that's what they did, right? Uh, and yeah, this can definitely be a problem for some people. I will say I personally don't really experience this at all, partially. And I think that, and I think partially that's because to me, I worked on PC for four years. Like the design of that game is really humanized for me, right? It's like, I, I know exactly what the process looks like. I know exactly how they got to the conclusions that they got to. And so I can make the compare. I'm very confident in making the comparison here where it's like, I know how they made their conclusions and I can make these comparisons and try and figure out like, on my own, if I think we should be making this, like taking the same conclusions away from, from their analysis, right? And whether that's actually applicable to our game um, on over on Wild Rift. Uh, it's, it's definitely something where I think I am very different from most people that work on Wild Rift, where at this point, you know, a lot of the original Wild Rift designers did come from PC, but at this point, most of them don't, right? Most of them for, are from other games, you know, or even from outside of, of Riot previous to working on Wild Rift. Um, there definitely are some people that can get like kind of, you know, overawed at, at, you know, league, obviously league is, you know, the most, you know, in, in pretty much every metric you can imagine the most successful PC game of all time. Right. And, and that definitely generates some kind of awe in people. Right. And so it can be hard for some people to move away, but definitely seeing the process, you know, kind of like, you know, seeing how the, the, the sausage gets made or, or however you want to put it, it's like, uh, at least for me, definitely pushes me away from, from really being too, uh, too concerned with um, doing exactly what PC does, and then sort of flipping this question on that he- on the head. Um, do you think it's difficult from a player's perspective to come in if you have experience with the league? Do you think it's difficult for them to come into a game like Wild Rift and and sort of see that dissonance between the two games and and realize that this is a very different game? So this is definitely one of the problems that Wild Rift, uh, you know, definitely has grappled with a lot of like how close do we want to be? Like, how much do we want to differentiate, right? And like, definitely right now we're in a more period of like, 
we do want to differentiate more. We're like, we're like pretty confident that we want to be different, like more different than we currently are. Um, that's why, you know, you can see that over the course of 2022, right, this year, we've made a lot of changes that have significantly deviated the gameplay, right? The new enchants, which are completely different from PC, um, you know, the new runes, which are, you know, a lot of which are quite different from PC, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff that we've done with our items, which is often very different from PC. Uh, we've definitely done some more differentiation this year, uh, but it's a really difficult topic, right? Where one of the most important things, right? I can say this as someone who did a lot, you know, did the game analysis work early on on Wild Rift is like, one of the most important things for the game is that it does preserve those like league moments, right? Of, of like, you know, the big Baron steal or the, the Darius, you know, dunk Penta or, you know, the, you know, the master Yi getting, you know, instantly, you know, chain CC'd by an entire team and getting taken out, right? When he's really fed or, or you know, these league moments that are really iconic for PC league. It, it, it is really important we preserve these and we don't want to get rid of them, right? We don't want to make this just the same as every other mobile MOBA out there. We want to have these big, you know, hype league moments. Um, and so a lot of what we're trying to do with the, the Wild Rift specific stuff is how do we, you know, not just keep the PC league, you know, hype, you know, big, you know, PC, big league moments, but also have our own special Wild Rift moments, right? And this is one of the things I was trying to get at with the enchants that I made, right? And I, and I would say some of these were a success and some of these were not, right? The, the enchants, which for people watching who have no idea what those, what I'm talking about, these are the equivalent of like active items in Wild Rift. Uh, where the enchants are, you know, there's like stasis, which is the Zonia's equivalent, and there's like Quicksilver, which is the QSS equivalent, etc. Um, I made a bunch of new enchants, trying to create some new big high moments for players uh, that could be different, you know, very meaningfully different from PC. Some of these were really successful, right? Meteor and Protect Enchant in particular, right? Meteor is basically a redemption that only does damage, but it does a lot of damage. Um, there's definitely a lot of players that have attached to Meteor as like this really cool, fun, big thing they can play around, they can try and you know, use this to zone or CC people in the meteor drop as the meteor is like coming down on them and blowing them up, right? And like protect is similar. It has its own really big high moments. The other enchants I made, I, I think maybe didn't do as well on the big high moments, but that's kind of one of the areas where we're looking to go is is not just league moments, but also wild rift moments is, is one of the things we're looking at now. And if you could distill down some of the core differences between uh League of Legends PC and Wild Rift in, in terms of like the actual uh not like granular gameplay differences, not like oh different items in different games, but like where is it different? Like a player coming into Wild Rift is going to play the game fundamentally differently from regular league. I know the games are shorter, there's definitely more of a a um focus on on um team fighting. Is that right? I I've only I only played a little bit of Wild Rift when it first came out, so Forgive my ignorance, but there's there's less focus on laning, right? Yeah, so the laning phase is a bit... Well, we've made some changes. Uh, you know, if you played it in the early days, the laning phase was, relatively speaking, shorter than it is now. We, we have extended it a bit, um, comparatively, uh, because we did have concerns that it was actually, in fact, too short, uh, <laughs> as you might think uh, from if you played it in the early time. Um, my thought on this is, like, one... So there's a few big differences, right? And I can, and I can you know, kind of explain like some of like some of the design decisions behind this or some of the mechanics behind it is like one is the, the, that the map is literally smaller right like relative to people's movement speed and and the ranges of spells and things like this the map is actually just smaller this is why the game feels like it's more about team fights um in a lot of ways why um the game feels a little bit more uh hectic in a lot of ways is just the map isn't as big right you just take less time to get 
between parts of the map. There, this enables roaming more. Uh, this means that you know jungle ganks uh, are more frequent, but your tower is also closer to you, so you get ganked more frequently. But you know you are less likely to actually you know not be able to make it to your tower before the jungler gets to you. Things like this, right? And so the smaller map is the sort of source of a lot of the big differentials. Of course, the faster pacing is also a huge, 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 huge thing for uh, the the difference, the different feelings between the game is just faster pacing, smaller map. These are things that are you know much more favorable to the kind of expectations of a mobile game, which mobile games are just kind of expected to be faster, you know, more hectic, more action. But it is really important to us that we maintain some of the the core downtime from PC, right? You know, there was a version that was tested early on uh, for Wild Rift where you could just buy items anywhere and you didn't you know didn't have to recall, right? This is something other mobile some other mobile mobiles do, right? Where uh, it allows you to have no downtime, but the downtimes actually turns out really important to creating the moments, like the push and pull feeling of the, the kind of league MOBA gameplay. Uh, and so, a lot of the kind of overall macro movements and overall macro plays end up being similar, but just faster and more explosive. Right? Things can go wrong much faster in Wild Rift, and things can also go right a lot faster in Wild Rift because. Things just happen a lot faster. <laughs> so, uh, how I would say is like if I if I were trying to describe this to someone who's like, let's suppose there's you know for somehow I don't know how this would who, how this person would exist, but let's suppose there's a big mobile gamer who's a really huge PC fan and has never played Wild Rift and doesn't know anything about it. It's like the way I would describe it to them is like it's it's you know it's League of Legends, but you know kind of suited for the mobile like for from what you would expect from a mobile game. And that's that's something that's super impressive, like ridiculously impressive to me is as a non-mobile gamer coming in and, and watching some some of the high level Wild Rift players, I always had this perception that that mobile games really had a lot of issues with controls and a lot of issues with with really making those inputs into the game because as a hardcore PC player, I've always been even playing with a like a, a regular Xbox controller or something. That was always really difficult to me versus PC. I felt like I had a lot more granular control over my character. But something that that really impressed me going into uh, Wild Rift content and stuff like that is just seeing how good people are at controlling their champion and and playing the game. And it's something that that I'm sure was a huge uh, hurdle just in terms to get those controls to the level where players can really utilize them to the most point. Do you think that there is a significant gap between like using a mouse and keyboard and, and using a mobile game? I know, I know they're fundamentally different games, but I'm sure there's some comparison there. So the interesting thing is that, you know, I, I, you know, if you asked me five years ago about the difference, I would have said, you know, the keyboard and mouse is superior in every way. You know, there's, there's like, you know, you just have much finer precision. It's like, my perspective has definitely changed, you know, some of which was because of the early tests of Wild Rift that we did, where we kind of saw what it looks like if it's not as good, and then saw improvement over time as they refined the control scheme. Um, and some of this is, is, you know, kind of more modern experience, more more knowledge, right? You know, I've, I've learned a lot about mobile control schemes, obviously working on a mobile game. Uh, the control schemes are truly, I, I would say, just different, and... I think the perspective a lot of people have of like, oh, keyboard and mouse superiority uh, or like this setup is just superior is like partially it is because, you know, people who played mobile games, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago or even, you know, five years ago, a lot of, you know, some of the lower quality mobile games is like, it's true that, you know, you might actually feel like the reason why the controls are bad or, or the controls are, are weaker is because it's mobile, right? But the truth is that you probably just were playing like lower quality mobile games or 
games that were developed in, a, in an earlier mobile time when the refinement for mobile controls just wasn't there, right? Like modern mobile control, like mobile controls are so good. Um, not just Wild Rift, there are other games out there with very good controls, like very good control schemes and very, very snappy movement, very responsive controls. And ultimately the differences come down to uh, Wild Rift offers you much better, like much finer control over your actual like movement, right? Like the comparison of being able to, you know, essentially like move a joystick to move in any direction at any time, you know, with perfect precision, essentially, is actually, I would, I, I would argue strongly that this is actually much better control over your, your personal position uh, than what PC has, which is you click the ground and you go there, right? This requires very strong pointer precision to constantly be, you know, repositioning and moving, right? Because it's not like you're using your mouse to control the, the movement directly of your character. You're indirectly controlling it by telling it a location to move to, and then your character has to path there, right? There's like a level of abstraction there, which creates uh, some barriers to uh, controlling, like very precise controlling, right? And this is why, for example, you know, this is one of the contributing factors for some people that like to play on like, you know, 800 by 600 resolution, for example, is that this means that, you, you know, you can have your, you know, more easily keep your, your uh, cursor close to your character and, and have less, you know, have less cost to doing so, right, et cetera, right? And there's lots of things there, right? The thing that Wild Rift does worse, I think the most notable thing it does worse is precise control uh, targeting locations of spells, right? You can see this with uh, things like, you know, Cinch W or, or Gragas Q or Gragas R. It's like, in League, you could just, you point your, your mouse to location, and that is the place where your spell will go, right? Spells that have both X and Y coordinates are, I think, generally a worse experience in Wild Rift because the game doesn't deal well with two-dimensional placement at the same time, essentially, right? It does really, really well with one-dimensional placement, right? Skill shots like Ezreal's Mystic Shot, for example, or Ezreal Ultimate or whatever, right? It's like you just flick it in a, lo in a direction, and, that, and then you're good to go. But when you have to not just choose a direction that you're sending it, but also a distance, that's where the Wild Rift controls are, are a bit worse off. And that's why some spells in Wild Rift are different in this way, right? Um, there are some differences in, in some champion kits uh, where there are some location-targeted spells that are either more generous or less powerful or carry different parts of the, the kit or different parts of the power budget of a champion in Wild Rift because... The precision lo like location targeting just you know for two dimensional spells is just not as good, but your personal positioning uh, you know is better in Wild Rift, and and this is why I actually think like the movement in Wild Rift like if you look at like pro level movement in Wild Rift, even though Wild Rift is a much newer game, I actually think the pro like the pro level movement is like comparable to and even better in some situations than uh, PC pro level movement, even though PC's been out for you know over ten years at this point and people have had a long time to refine this. Because the controls do have a level of abstraction that prevent you from directly manipulating the positioning of exact positioning of your, your champion, right? Whereas Wild Rift does have that exact positioning manipulation because you can just move your character wherever you want in whatever direction you want at any time. That was That's really funny that you say that because coming into League of Legends about over 10 years ago now, I had only really ever played games that had controlled with like that granular level of movement, WSAD. Um <clears throat> And coming into League, you're like, oh, I, I have to click to move my character? That's so weird. And nowadays, that's just a second hand to me because I've been playing League for so long. But you mentioning that really immediately brought up that, that thought. Because when you think about it, it is 
you do have a better control scheme, especially with the joystick versus WSD, because WSD is kind of awful for just like total granularity. Um, yeah, but, yeah, and and like yeah, some some people would say like, oh, you could do do WSD and get similar effect on PC, but it's like there is a difference between being able to move in four directions versus being able to like and and you know obviously it's actually eight because you can take to it at the same time, time, right? But uh, there is a difference between that and being able to literally move in any direction, right? With with one full degree, like full freedom in, in Wild Rift, right? So there is a yeah, difference for sure. There. Uh, and you mentioned something about the the placement um, spells. If you and I, I, I promise I'll stop making so many league to P, PC to Wild Rift comparisons because I'm sure you're sick of them. Um, but if you weren't coming from a game like PC League, do you think they would be in the game of Wild Rift? Do you think they have uh, a high priority place in there, or would you fundamentally change abilities like that to really not have a place in the game because of the control difficulties? Place for some of these, I think they would probably be a lot less frequent. I, I think you'd probably see like. Ultimately, stuff like Gragas Ultimate is just like that's just a cool spell, right? Like that's a very interesting spell, but you have to fight the controls a little bit. And I think maybe there might be some interesting modifications that you could make to it if you didn't want it to be like an exact precision X Y location marker. Um, and maybe you might want to make this. Might maybe you wouldn't, right? Like using other mobile mobas as an example. Generally, they have fewer of these, but they generally do have some of these. If that makes sense, right? It's like. Other mobile MOBAs, you know, if you look at them, you know, things like Vainglory or MLB, MLBB or whatever, um, they do typically have some location targeted spells, but the frequency of them tends to be a lot lower than Wild Rift because, of course, Wild Rift is, is mostly importing champions from PC or, well, I guess it's exclusively importing champions from PC. Um, of course, we modify them sometimes, right? And so some of the location targeted spells aren't um, exactly the same in Wild Rift, but importing champions with PC that where the designers of PC have no concerns whatsoever with putting an XY spell uh, that has two dimensions in the game because their control scheme supports that perfectly. In fact, it supports it incredibly well. Uh, it, it It is definitely different in Wild Rift where I think if we were making like custom Wild Rift champion, it's like pretty unlikely we would do this type of thing. But if we made like 20 Wild Rift champions, you know, that, that like just for this game, how many XY targeted spells would we have? Probably one or two. Like, you know, I think they'd be present. I just think they'd be less frequent. That's a really good answer. And shifting back towards more towards the the role um, part of this discussion and, and less away from the granular gameplay discussion, um, where do you think disconnects between like greater team vision for a game like Wild Rift and individuals happen? Because as a designer, you probably have a lot of very strong thoughts about how you think things should be done. And how you think how you want things to be executed? How do you balance those between what other people, other teams want to do, other people want to do, and what leadership wants to do? So my experience has generally been there's rarely a like, and you know I, I've talked with lots of other people in game dev that have had very different experiences here, but like at least in my experience working on PC and uh, Wild Rift, there's very rarely been significant deviation between hey, leadership wants us to do X, but we actually want to do Y. There's, of course, always debate about, hey, leadership wants us to do X, and I want to do it in, you know, I I want to do, you know, option A, but, you know, this other team wants us to do option B, right? There's always disputes about how you should accomplish things. But in my experience, it's actually pretty rare that people dispute about the actual goal of what we, what, what, like what the overarching goal of what we should be doing is. 
Um, now, of course, I'm sure for some teams this has come up, right? You know, like at times. And, but, you know, for my – the places that I have worked, I'm going to focus here in on, like, when people disagree about the tactics, less so than when people disagree about the goals because goals disagreements are pretty straightforward. It's like, hey, I disagree with this goal because – uh, you know, I think the game would be better if we did this instead, or I think the game is worse because, you know, if you if you accomplish this goal or whatever. And it's like those types of conversations, as long as you have properly stated goals, they're generally, to be honest, like surprisingly easy. Um, the idea of like, for example, you know, controversial stuff that, you know, has, has you know, gone like been around internally that hasn't shipped, like, you know, the original version of Swain's passive or something like that, right? It's like Swain, you know, the Swain rework in PC had this very controversial passive where he collected souls from, not just enemy deaths, but also ally deaths, right? And it's like, hey, we disagree with your goals of doing this. It's like, that's a, you know, it's a hard conversation to have in the sense that like you're disagreeing with someone's work, but it's a very easy conversation to have in terms of like, hey, X, Y, and Z is why I disagree. I think it's a really controversial thing to do to essentially pay someone off for their allies dying and essentially, you know, reward their allies in some situations for committing suicide. This is a very, you know, kind of counterintuitive thing to do and also potentially really high frustration, right? It's like that type of stuff, um, I think those conversations are pretty straightforward most of the time. The discussions about tactics can get very complicated. Uh, and even amongst, you know, designer, you know, designer on designer tactics conversations can be very tough where, hey, you know, you have a small disagreement about exactly what the, you know, maybe the win rate impact of, a, of an individual line or uh, whether an individual aspect of a kit is skewed towards skilled players, highly skilled players or lesser skilled players. And, you often get to these points where you, you know, if you're having the conversation properly, most of the time what will happen is you will find out where the origin of the dispute is, right? Which is often going to be, hey, I think this aspect of this, this system is, you know, skewed to this type of player or this, like these types of players really like this type of system or, or whatever. And you find that what you end up having is a, you know, fundamental disagreement about this thing. And, and oftentimes this is like something that can't really be easily proven one way or the other. And so you end up just kind of, hey, we agree to disagree, and whoever owns the project does this and takes you know takes the feedback into account, and you know they either ship it and accept the you know the risk that this other person has brought up, or they decide to pivot in a different direction that maybe doesn't expose them to the you know whatever risk the other person is is coming up with. Yeah, and I think that's something that when you're in a creative field like game dev, even when you're on uh, uh, what some people may look at as like a less creative. Um, output like like game balance um learning to agree to disagree and not have it damage your uh collaborative relationship with your team is so incredibly important because you don't want to be holding a grudge about somebody not wanting to have swain passive reward allies dying five years down the line and and have that affect the aspect of the game so um that's another one of those soft skills that could be learned in college so keep it keep a ear out for that (laughs) Yeah, um, how to have tough discussions, definitely a good skill to have. For sure, and not let it personally affect your relationship with that person. So this is more of an open-ended question, and you can answer it however you'd like. Uh, what is something that you want people to know about your role, or what's something that people may not know about your role that you wish more people did? Um, I think the biggest thing that, like, when I interact with people, the, the like, biggest expectation people have uh, that I personally find to be like kind of annoying when people assume this is my personal opinion on balance doesn't have 
like, or my personal experience with balance doesn't have nearly as big of an impact as people think, right? Like, you know, this is a classic when you have Riot in your name and you're just playing in a random game, which is part of the reason why I, I both in Wild Rift and in PC, I have all forms of chat disabled, right? Team chat, all chat, they're all off. Um, so I find this to be really annoying when people are like, oh, they're playing Zed and they're really fed, you know, and someone in the game will just say like, oh, Zed nerfs in next patch, right? And it's like, I work on balance and I like literally don't care if there's a fed Zed in my game. It's like, I understand that my personal experience is, is, you know, an infinitesimal fraction of the live environment, right? There's, you know, there's, you know, thousands of games being played every minute, right? You know, both Wild Rift and, and PC. And it's like, in some of those games, I'm going to, you know, if I queue up for a random game, there's going to be some weird stuff happening in every single one of those games, right? You know, like there's going to be some outliers in every single one of those games because there's so many different things happening, right? You know, MOBAs are games of ultimate variance, right? There's so much variance in the genre in general. Uh, and so you're, of course, going to experience crazy variance in every game that you have, right? Even in total stomps, weird stuff is going to happen that, you know, doesn't happen in every stomp, right? Um, and so because there's so many different things that change, so many different things that can that can happen in a given game of, of PC or Wild Rift, um, I, you know, one of the things you have to understand working on balance is that your personal experiences can't be the end-all be-all of how you approach the game, right? You need to use data, right? You need to use the, in, like, the information and the tools that you have access to to understand, hey, this like I in my in my games this week I have seen two you know two Zeds go you know eighteen and zero right is this a something that's happening just for me that's some weird variance that's occurring or is this actually a pervasive problem across the player base and this is actually something that's happening way more frequently than it should right um, and getting an understanding of like where the divergence of your personal experience versus the reality is that is something that is really critical to do a good job as a balanced designer that I don't think really many people have a good concept or understanding of. Yeah. And I think I, I can share that frustration just from the outsider's perspective, looking in and just seeing people sort of just immediately qualify uh, sort of this emotional decision-making based on uh, emotional decision making on these these changes where it's like do you really think these people are so um professionally immature that they would they would make changes that affect literally millions of players based on personal experiences in their games and then obviously the answer to that is some people think oh yes obviously because they're blah 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 they're so bad at balancing the game so yeah. just coming from the outsider's perspective I share that frustration, so I can only imagine how rough it can be going, dealing with that uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, and I definitely don't blame you for disabling chat. For some, some uh, like, to some extent, like, and this is, like, funny to think about, like, in the objective sense, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't really help in the moment, is, like, some people here are projecting, right? This is exactly what they would do if they were balanced designers, and obviously that's part of what makes them, you know, that a lot of people... Many people would not make good balanced designers right out there. Uh, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, hey, look, I understand this is what you would do. You know, you would see a, an 18-0 Zed in your games twice in, twice in a week and you would just nerf Zed. And it's like, I, you know, I'm better at my job than that. I, I would not do that, right? So, uh, it, you know, some of it I understand is, is coming from a perspective of ignorance and some of it is coming from a perspective of projection. Um, 
but I generally find the whole sentiment to be kind of just like frustrating to interact with where I like the ones that, you know, I know that there are people out there that are like, that are willingly being ignorant about it or, and like, sometimes it's in good fun, right. To like, I, I get it. And, and it's like, not everyone doing this is doing it in a malicious way, but it, there definitely are people that are, and, and that can be pretty frustrating to, to deal with. For sure. And bouncing off of that, do you think you have any advice for somebody in a position of, of sort of uh, who's scrutinized often for something like that? Do you think you have advice to them on how to sort of take that into account, but also not let it dictate your life? Because you're in a very public role and, and a game like Riot or a game company like Riot obviously has a lot of uh, emotional arguments both for and against them. So I'm sure that can be difficult. I think there's a lot of different ways to approach how you deal with this, right? There's lots of balance designers, uh, both on Wild Rift and in PC, that simply the way that they deal with this is by not interacting. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? There's, um, you know, Zach Raman, for example, who's on my team. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't believe he has ever publicly posted a single thing on Reddit or Twitter or, um, you know, ever streamed on Twitch. Like, I, I, he doesn't even have Riot in his name. You know, he plays and, and you know, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even play under his Riot name, right? Like, he actually play, he has a different account. That he plays Wild Rift on. Um, I think just simply being anonymous and, and acting like a player, I think this is a good way to approach it, right? It's like, just don't, you know, if you don't interact with the players, a lot of this stuff will just never come up, right? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that fundamentally, right? I enjoy interacting with players on my stream, and so I'm willing to opt into that experience. Um, and to me, I would say I have a particular skill for being able to rationalize this type of stuff. And I, I just say like, look, it's either coming from a position of ignorance or it's coming from a position of projection. It's like, and I can tell myself that. And when I see these types of comments, like in my stream or, or in my Twitter DMs or whatever, it's like, I, I'm, I would say I'm pretty good at brushing this type of stuff off for whatever reason. I find it frustrating when I, when I see this type of stuff, when I'm playing the game, which is why I disable the chat. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably because I am putting so much of my focus on playing the game. And I, and I find this type of thing to be distracting, but Outside the game, I don't tend to have too much of a problem with it. So uh, the rationalization and like being able to, you know, make sure that you understand like, at a, you know, at a deep level, not not just that you say this to yourself, but that you actually believe it's like you have to under like, legitimately understand it's like, this is not how things work. Like they don't understand and they are generally speaking, acting from a position of ignorance. Um, and the best thing I can do for them is either to educate them or to ignore them, right? Those are really my only options. Um, and just like understanding that and, and like, like to a full degree, I think is uh, really important to being able to, if you want to interact with players in this or, you know, interact in these type of tough situations with people who are going to be ignorant about the decisions that you're making, it's pretty essential that you under like fully realize that they are coming from a position of ignorance. And on a more positive note, um, coming from that sort of vein, what interactions do you find like actually provide uh, constructive feedback and like things that you feel like you can use to make the game better? And how would you recommend that people form those uh, thoughts if they were to interact with you? So my personal experience has been the most helpful thing that I get out of player interactions is not really understanding like what players you know even want or what players think that they want or what players like uh what players like are, are looking forward to but actually just how players view the game 
Like this has been for me, the most like important thing I've been able to get is how do players understand the game? When they look at this item, what do they think about, right? When they, when they look at this, you know, situation, what is it that they're thinking? This has been extremely helpful for me as a designer and just generally as someone that works on games of like getting a better, like a, a better, like kind of read into the, the player's mind or like a look through their eyes. That has been the most useful thing to me. And like, honestly, I, you know, it's also the most fun part, I think, um, of working. I mean, I guess anticip- hearing about players' anticipation for the future or their excitement about the current game, that's also really fun too. But I think it is really fun trying to like climb inside the player's head and, and like understand what it looks like, like what the game looks like to them, which is very different from the way that I see the game, right? It's like inevitable. Working on the game is going to warp the way that you, you view the game. You cannot look at it the same way as a player. And so the most important thing for me interacting with players is always to be able to get that kind of unbiased perspective of how does this player see the game, right? You know, how, how do they look at this system or that champion or this, you know, this situation or whatever um, has always been the thing that I have valued the most in player interactions. That's awesome. That's really good to hear. I love asking questions like that because for for people who are in a more public facing role, I'm sure that the the vitriol and the the negativity can be overwhelming. So I like to sort of shift the focus towards some of the positives and kind of see where you actually can get some benefit out of out of that wall of stuff coming at you. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I'll say like uh my I would say in particular, like I've been pretty impressed. Like I, I've been doing these Twitch streams, these review streams of of Wild Rift patches for at this point over a year. Um I've been really impressed with how positive in general. Like I not to say that I've never gotten any negative comments on my stream, um, because I certainly have, uh, but like how positive in general the stream is about the game, especially relative to like my Reddit account and and like my Twitter account where you know, I've gotten death threats on both of those, you know, and I'm like, you know, not just death threats, but like, I've gotten a lot of like very negative messages, like people that are just very down or, or people who are um, very, very like, you know, some, some real vitriol or, or whatever that they're spewing at me. Um, But the Twitch stream in particular has been a real kind of like beacon of positivity for me personally, at least, which uh, has been really awesome for sure. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I set up, like I set out originally to try and just interact with players generally. The stream was one thing I tried and the stream is the one thing that like, I still, every patch, I I make sure that I set aside time to stream and I make it work. Even if my schedule is really awful or I'm sick or whatever, I make it work because that has been really awesome and interacting with players and on, on my stream has been really awesome. Yeah. And I actually had this on the, the show notes and I completely forgot to mention it. I wanted to plug your stream and your passionate rundown. So go ahead and tell uh, the people, all the people out there, uh, where they can catch you and what they can expect. Yeah, so it's uh, twitch.tv slash endstep. So that's just like the two words, end and step, but no space or anything between them um, is where I stream. And basically what I do is uh, usually I try to within a few days of every, like whenever the patch notes go up. So when the patch goes out live for Wild Rift, I try and go through the patch notes and kind of review I, it, it turns into a Q&A stream basically every time where I'm just answering a lot of questions from the chat. But what I try and do is while simultaneously answering questions from the chat, I try and go through everything in the patch notes and kind of talk about our rationale, why we made this change, what we're looking for, what we're hoping to get out of this change, whether there's you know likely to be follow-up, whether we think we're, you know, we're almost certainly done with this or, or whatever. And, like, and one of the cool things about doing it on a stream is of the video format, which I have actually experimented with as well, by the way, like I did experiment with doing videos for a few patches. 
Um, the reason why I like the stream so much is that if you have a follow-up question on something that's in that, that patch, it's very easy for me to just say, oh, well, you know, this, this recon thing, you know, like, for example, this happened in, in my most recent patch review for 3.5 uh, that I did yesterday. You know, people were asking questions about recon where we changed recon's uh, Q range, right? You know, his gleaming quo range. Uh, people were asking questions about like, hey, you know, what do you, you know, what is this, you know, what are the implications of this for, for support versus mid lane or, you know, uh, you know, all these sorts of different things about uh, the, the champion. And it's like, a lot of the time, it's just stuff that I would not have really known that was something, you know, that was a particular aspect of it that people were interested in. And I can very quickly and easily add that to my answer, my response, um, which is really awesome, uh, which definitely doesn't work out in the video format where it's kind of just like static and it's just kind of like the answer that you get is the answer that you get. So that's one of the things I really like about the stream. And yeah, like I said, it's just twitch.tv slash endstep. And uh, if you really want to find out uh, when I'm doing those streams, it's a little bit inconsistent because I try and make sure I do them for every patch, but I don't always have time the same day that the patch notes drop. So uh, my Twitter is uh, actually, let me make sure that this is true. It's on, um, it's on stream right now at riot and step. Oh, excellent. Thank you for having it. I actually didn't even know what my own Twitter <laughs> handle was. So uh, yeah, so it's at riot and step. Um, and that's, I, I generally announce like, Hey, I'll retweet the patch notes and say like, Hey, I'm going to stream like this day or I'm going to stream later today. And, and then give at least try and give a general idea of when I'm going to be streaming. Although, Again, you know, I try and make sure that I, I do a stream for every single patch notes, which can get a, a little bit hectic with the schedule. So I don't always have like an exact idea of when I'm going to be streaming. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And it's so funny that you bring up um, like the, the, the ability to interact with people on your stream and sort of answering these questions. A lot of the times, like all the streams kind of turn into a Q&A. Um, when I originally started Dev Dive uh, with... Um, a friend, a good friend of mine, Larry Colvin, who used to work at Riot as well. Uh, he was, um, he was he he bounced around. He was a few roles, but he was on the production team or the art production team. And one of the real goals of the show was to sort of open up people's perception of game dev in general and writers in particular, uh, and really provide more of a humanization of these people because. Um, I think we started back in 2017 or 2018. This was kind of before Rioter streaming was really a thing. I, there may have been a few, like I think Freak streamed and a few other people, but there really weren't that many people in game dev at Riot who were doing this sort of interaction. And back then it was like a lot more uh, rare and, and valuable to have people come on the show and kind of just discuss this kind of thing because it was sort of a black box, uh, a game studio like Riot, where there was a lot of communication on forums like Reddit and maybe YouTube if you're lucky, but that sort of very personal individual Q&A was, was quite rare. And over the past four or five years, it's been really, really awesome to see more people at Riot and more people in general in game dev sort of really reach out and branch out and, and make that community outreach a priority for them. And I know that's... Um, a, a double-ended stick a lot of the times i think that that ends up ending up with a lot of a lot of negative experiences for people but um i think it has evolved the community as a whole to be hopefully more respectful towards these people and and really understand that there are humans behind these decisions and and saying things at those humans affects them so um that's something that i've lo i've loved to see over the years and it's really opened up um my perspective on game dev as a whole as well yeah for All sure right. and and i think yeah just to, to speak a little bit more than that um like i think 
one of the people I'd like to thank in particular for really like giving me the idea that this could be a long-term thing was actually Mortdog, right? Like Mortdog obviously took this to a whole other level than everyone else, right? You know, definitely magnitude wise, like he's, you know, leaps and bounds, like, you know, not just one level above, but like many levels above the the level of interaction he's doing with the community than anyone else at Riot. But that definitely is is one of the things that, that kind of inspired me or like, you know, kind of convinced me that long-term, you know, doing, you know, game dev streaming was something that I could, you know, I could do and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, when I, when I started doing this, I was hoping, Hey, I could invest a little bit less time than Mord and, and try and get, you know, a lot of the value. And I think as far as the dev interaction side of things goes, I think, I think I did that pretty well. Yeah. And for those of you who are interested, we've actually done a show with Mort Dog in the past. I think it was uh, three years ago. It was pretty early on in TFC, like set three or four. Um, so if you're interested in that, go ahead and listen. It's a, it's a really good show. He's got such great insights into both TFT and the creative aspect of being a, a content creator um, while balancing being a, a, such a strong driving force for that game. So definitely give that a listen if you're interested. So getting back slightly on topic, um, do you have any goals that you've set your, for yourself in the future in terms of your professional life and your personal life? So we're going to do some some really long-range callbacks here on remembering that I'm not super great about setting <laughs> long-term long goals here. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's just true, right? Like I, I always thought, you know, when I joined Riot, I was like, yeah, I'd like to be a game designer, but I, I didn't really put a ton of effort, you know, immediately into, hey, I want to learn game design or I'm going to go take game design coursework or whatever. It's like, I, I kind of incidentally made my way into pretty much every position that I've ever been in, in my life, basically in that I generally don't like push super hard. Like there's not that many things that I I'm push super hard for. Right. It's like, I, I think the only example is like in the moment of like when, you know, when I was, a, you know, when I saw this position, you know, for Wild Rift game design open, I did push really hard for it. Right. I went extremely hard. Right. I could tell you like those, the, like the weeks leading up to the interview and like doing the interview process and all that stuff, I was going really hard on, doing my research and making sure that I like kind of rounded out everything that I could know or everything that I could you know, interact with that I thought would give me a better shot and like improve my skills. Um, but that didn't really become real for me until I saw the role itself. Um, and I thought, Hey, this, this is like kind of perfect for me. Um, going to the actual question here of like, do I have any goals? Um, I think kind of similar to a lot of the things I had when I, uh, you know, kind of a lot of things I've talked about, here, you know, previously, it's like, I have some general like ideas of like, hey, things that I'd like to do, but you know, not things where I'm like, I am actively working towards doing this thing literally right now in every second of my life, right? It's like, generally speaking, one of the things I want to do at some point is, is uh, work on some games in another genre, right? I've worked in game dev for five and a half years. And I've worked on two live service MOBAs, right? Uh, I do think it would be interesting to see what else is out there maybe even try like something that's really different like a pve game like something that's not competitive right is that is that something i'd like more i'm not sure right i've never tried it um i think generally like working on a different type of game you know generally working in really different environments like you know again a, a non-live environment right some some game that's not actually currently live because i've never done that before really um i think those are some general thoughts of like things i would like to do but i don't know if i'd necessarily call them goals but just things that like yeah, you know, that sounds like it would be really interesting if I could make that happen. I think we share a lot of the same philosophies there because <laughs> I also, whenever I ask, I, I work I work at a, a in an education technology and whenever I get asked like, oh, what are your goals 
Like, where do you see yourself in five years? Which I hate that question so much. Yeah, um, not a fan. I'm just like, <laughs> I, maybe doing this, maybe doing something else. I'm very much fly by the seat of my pants. So it's, it's good to hear that, that other people can share that philosophy and still be successful in their roles. <laughs> it's very inspiring. So <laughs> transitioning into more of the key takeaways and wrapping up the show, because we've been here for quite a while and I've taken up enough of your Sunday evening. Um, sort of summarizing what we've been talking about, what are some of the skills and habits that you focus on and you recommend other people focus on who want to get into a similar role in game dev? I think the biggest thing I would call out from from dealing with a good number of people who are trying to get into game design in particular, the biggest deficiency I think I see or like the, area, the biggest area where I think there's a lot of room for improvement um, is understanding other people's perspectives, right? This is a classic where a lot of people that get into game de- uh, that, that are interested in game design, what they actually want ultimately is to make games for themselves, right? There's nothing fundamentally wrong with this, right? It's like, I mean, it's kind of a selfish reason to get into game design, but I mean, pretty much every person who wants to do work is doing it for like somewhat selfish reasons, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with that innately, right? But it's also wrong from the perspective of how many game designers are there that even work on the same game for a super extended period of time um, you know, let alone a game that perfectly aligns with their own personal interests, right? It's a very small percentage, right? Then you can further ask the question of like, even of those very small number of game designers that, you know, long-term work on the same game that happens to align with their personal interests, uh, how many of those game designers have to work on things that aren't only for the core audience or have others like kind of splash appeal to other members of the audience, right? And it's like, the answer to that is, all of them, right? Literally every single one, right? Even someone like Mark Rosewater, who, if you don't know who that is, is the head, head, or I don't know what his actual title is, but he's basically lead designer or head designer for development in Magic the Gathering. And he's been doing this job for like 25 years or something absolutely insane like this, right? He's only ever worked on Magic, right? Guy is absolutely like, you know, a longtime legend, right? It's like, this guy invented player psychographics for Magic that he doesn't belong to to be able to better design cards for different players besides himself, right? This is a critical thing you are going to have to do as a game designer is you're going to have to understand why other people play games, what makes them interested in a game, even if your plan, which by the way, generally will not work, even if your plan is to only work on like one specific type of game, one specific game that really appeals to you, there are going to be different people in the audience, right? That aren't the same exact, you know, don't have the same exact desires as you, right? even if you're the most hyper-competitive player ever and your plan is to only play League of Legends, it's like, there are people like me who aren't particularly competitive who just really, really, really like high-variance games that have a lot of, like, intricacies and, you know, kind of things to, to mess and tinker with, right? That's me, right? Like, I, I really like messing around with the individual aspects and optimizing things in League of Legends. It's like, if you're just a pure competitive player who just wants to win and you're working on League of Legends and you just care about people who want to win. It's like you entirely leave out a big segment of the players, which are people like me, right? Um, and the same is true for basically every genre ever, every, every game ever. No game only has one type of player playing it, right? Um, only like one, you know, one type of, of desire that it's appealing to. Um, and so understanding why other people play games is incredibly, incredibly important to be a good game designer. And so what I would recommend practicing getting into the habit of is trying to empathize and understand other people and understand why they play games, right? You know, a good example here is like when I was growing up, I love playing, you know, all the classic video games, right? The Pokemons, the Smash Bros, you know, the, the, you know, the Ocarina of Times, right? And like 
my brother just basically played Madden. And one day I happened to sit next to him on the couch. I don't really know, remember, remember why I was there when he was playing Madden. And I kind of just quizzed him on like, what exactly did he like about Madden? Why did he like Madden? Because I hated this game. I couldn't stand playing Madden, right? And it's like, I actually think this helped me a lot to understand um, like the differences between people and like what people were playing video games for was he wasn't playing for the same reasons I was. That's why he liked Madden and he didn't like playing Ocarina of Time, right? And and understanding those differences and, and pursuing the like the understandings or like pursuing the reasons why different people like different games or don't like different games. That is what I would highly, highly, highly recommend to people getting into game design because I think it's number one, the most important skill. And number two, I think it's also the area where people are tend to be most deficient in my experience getting into game design. Yeah. I think I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, the example you gave with Madden just resonated so hard with me. I'm like, yeah, I just don't understand how people can sit down and play sports games for, or even like driving games for like, 10 hours a day that's crazy to me but it is important to to really understand where those people are coming from and what they want because they are they're also gamers so it's in there um next question if you could go back to the college days to the the classic 2015 amateur scene uh what have you wish you had known back then like what would you have done differently i think one of the things that i would have done is you know, I don't know how much this would change things again. You know, I'm not really much of a long-term planner. So like, especially thinking about myself back then, you know, is there anything I could say that would really change the things that I would do? I don't know. Um, but the thing that I would say generally is, is kind of like, you're, you're closer than you, you, you're closer than you think to, to doing something that's actually fun. Cause my perspective back then was kind of defeatist. It was kind of like, well, I'm not going to really try to, you know, pursue something that I really think is going to be awesome. Like, you know, going and trying to get into game. Like I could have tried to get into game dev right after I graduated and I, and I didn't, right. I, I actually didn't even try it at all because I kind of assumed that was way out of my reach. Right. And I think the thing that I would tell myself is you're closer than you think, right. You know, you're, you're totally eligible to um, like for, for a bunch of jobs in game dev as you are right now. Um, and the things that you like, the things that you think will just kind of work themselves out. Like sometimes they won't, and you probably should, you know, put more effort into to making sure that things go the way that, that, you know, you want them to. Right. At the same time, it's like things have obviously worked out for me in the end. And so ultimately if things stay the exactly the same way, it's like, you know, yeah, it was kind of soul crushing to get laid off, but it's like, you know, if that's the price of, of getting to where I am now, it's like, I would be willing to pay that again. Yeah. I think advocate for yourself more and, and put more effort into achieving the goal, the, 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 the things that you want to achieve. So this doesn't have to be in game dev at all. Uh, and this can be as open end as you want it to be. If you weren't working at Riot, what would you want to be doing? What's your dream job? It's a tough one. Cause I think like a lot of the answers are kind of like cop out answers of like, Oh yeah, I would just want to be doing game design at some other studio working on like the next elder scrolls or some other game that I think, you know, could be awesome. Right. Uh-huh. Um, if I'm saying like, you know, if we're going like no cop-out answers of like doing exactly the same job, like, you know, I'm not working at Riot, I'm not doing game design, you know, even potentially not in game dev is like, I think one of the things I think I maybe could have enjoyed long, I think the most likely thing I've seen that I might have enjoyed long-term is um, actually, this might be kind of surprising, is like data analytics. I actually did a, a brief, like very small hours. It was like five hours a week or so, like uh, data analysis 
type of thing. And, and working on game analysis at Riot kind of gave me a similar feeling to this um, of doing like analysis on big data and like kind of collating this data and like bring like setting up conclusions for people and just like kind of talking to people about the conclusions you made from the data. I actually think it's super fun. Like kind of turning numbers into a sentiment is, is like, that's kind of cool when you like turn like a bunch of, of, you know, you get a bunch, you, 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 the input is a bunch of spreadsheets in Excel and the output is, Hey, let's, you know, let's, you know, double down on this aspect of, of the business or, or like go harder on this thing is like, I think that's actually really cool. And like, it's kind of cool to see that like transformative output of, of like this type of it, like numeric information into like strategic information. It's like a really cool space personally, like at least for me, um, it's something that I really like. Uh, and I think that is, you know, that is one of the things that kind of uh, kept me interested in the game analysis team for four years is that it is very similar to the type of thing you're doing. And so that might be something like something else I, I could have done long-term and been happy with that, I think. That's an awesome answer. And and I definitely wasn't expecting something like, oh, I'd want to be a fisherman or I want to, <laughs> I'd want to go <laughs> and work, work on plumbing or something. But it's always really interesting to see people's answers to that question because it can vary so wildly between I wouldn't want to be in this field or I want to do something completely different or I want to, like you said, I want to do exactly what I'm doing now, just in a different role or a different company. Um, And finally, no limit here. You can, you can plug as many people as you want. Who are some people that inspire and motivate you to be better at what you do? Um, I think just the big, the big hitters here, I think like people that I work, like in terms of people that I work with right now, I think number one, Rogue Fool is just an incredible designer. Um, He's another, he's a champions designer on Wild Rift. He, helped me out a ton when I first joined Wild Rift. And, and I found like the way that he works and approaches things to be incredibly motivating. And, and the, the way that he kind of like tirelessly is always working for what he, like what the, what, what's better for the player is, is really motivating. I think um, thinking back to some of the designers that I used to work with, or some of the people in general that I used to work with, I think uh, Xenogenic, um, who uh, I guess you can look him up on Twitter if you want. It starts with an X. He's been on the um, show as well. Yeah, he's incredible. I think absolutely incredible designer. He has this really incredible skill of presenting a uh, a goal, even if it seems ridiculous, and then kind of showing everyone how you're going to achieve that goal, right? With the Nunu rework and the, the Mordekaiser rework, where he kind of said, hey, with Nunu, we're going to make this snowball rolling character. And I, and you know, we're going to figure this out. And, and it's like, and he kind of led you on this design journey, right? I found that to be really inspiring. And same thing with Mordekaiser, where it was like, we're going to the death realm and I don't know how we're going there and I don't know exactly what it does, but that's where we're going. And, you know, kind of same thing where we took, he took us on this like design journey and it felt like we were kind of all uh, not only, you know, fully in the loop and understanding of everything he was doing, um, but also like kind of on the journey with him, which was really cool. That's like those, I think in terms of people that I've worked with, I think those are the two big ins- inspirations. And I think it's in terms of someone who like has no idea who I am and I've never worked with or have, you know, have any, uh, you know, have any thought that we would ever work together is like i think mark rosewater the designer led he did the designer of magic or whatever his job title is these days um i you know when i was in high school i used to read this guy's game dev articles every week and you know i never really had any thought of like oh i'm eventually going to be exactly i'm going to be a game designer just like mark rosewater in the future or anything like that it's just like this is just something that i thought was really cool that i read and then you know nowadays this guy's put out like 300 plus hours worth of podcasts and i've listened to like probably hundred hours worth of his podcast just because they're so interesting. Right. And it's like, this guy I found is really inspiring. He just makes a crazy amount of content. He does a crazy amount of design. I think he does a crazy good job. And I think the guy is just 
all around incredible. And I find the whole thing to be really inspiring, like the whole story of like how he got into game dev and, you know, became the, the head, like the lead designer for magic and, and doing all this stuff. It's like, um, it's really inspiring. Uh, and so that's definitely something that has motivated me or, or motivated me and made me kind of rethink getting into design at times when it seemed like it was never going to happen. For, for those who aren't familiar, do you know what his podcast is called off the top of your head? Drive to work. Uh, I think work. it might have an exclamation point. Let me, I, I can check right now. It's, I mean, if you look up Mark Rosewater, uh, drive to work to podcast. Yeah. That's the first, that's this recommending podcast. Yeah. It, you know, you can find the, the first, you know, the first three links are all, you know, links to the, the, you know, re requisitions of the podcast. So yeah, I would highly recommend if you're someone who is looking to learn about game design, especially if you play magic, um, I would highly recommend listening to some of his podcasts uh, and, you know, reading some of his articles. Uh, and in general, I would say if you want to get into game design, one of the games I would, you know, top, top, you know, three games I would recommend learning is Magic the Gathering because not necessarily just because there's a lot of reasons why I would recommend it. One is that Magic has preserved history. It has 30 years or so of preserved history of like you can literally see how they used to do design and you can still play you know, the old sets, right? You can still play the older versions of the game, which is very different from video games, typically speaking, right? Um, but also because the most game, like free game design content that is out there made by one person is definitively made by Mark Rosewater and he makes his content about Magic the Gathering because that's the game that he works on. So yeah, if you want to get into game design, you know, I highly, highly, highly recommend learning the, at least the rules of Magic the Gathering so you can fully understand what Mark Rosewater is talking about in his, in his articles and stuff. And that definitely helped me out getting into game design. So check out, check out Drive to Work. Um, all right. I think that's pretty much it for what we got here today. I want to thank Nick for coming on the show, making some time on his Sunday evening. Check him out on Twitter at Riot and Step. And if you want to watch his Twitch streams on the Wild Rift Rundown patches, it's at Nst or sorry, slash twitch.tv slash and step, right? Yep, that's it. Anything else you want to plug on there? No, uh just thanks for having me. Um and uh everybody who's listening, I guess thanks for watching or listening or what whichever one they're doing, I guess, since this will be <laughs> auto format later, but it's currently visual. Um yeah, thanks everybody for uh you know taking the time to listen to this or watch this and um yeah i think that's pretty much it for me for sure yeah and if you want to watch live we're live um theoretically sundays at about 5 p.m pst that time may change follow me on twitter uh, at ben DePiro, or you can just follow the podcast twitter at devs i've podcast if you want to know the more granular specifics on when the show is going to be and what's going on um if you can't catch it live but you still want to watch the video you can check out my youtube channel youtube.com slash nighthawk 20,000 that's two with five zeros i think it's five no four zeros Twenty thousand. um it's on the it's on the twitter uh links you can find it there we do all the vods there if you want to watch the visuals and if not we're on every single podcast audio platform spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, stitcher anchor all sorts of stuff just look dev dive up there i think we're the first one there if not it's the one with the blue logo um and you can always listen to us there we've got a lot of great episodes about 32 now Really good episodes on from game designers, game dev people from all walks of life, all philosophies, and even some non-game devs people if you're interested in that. So give us a follow on any of these platforms. Give us a rating if you want. It helps out the show. Um, I just like doing this for fun. I'm not really looking to make this professional, so it doesn't really matter to me as long as people are enjoying it. That's all I care about. Thank you so much for listening, watching, or whatever way you're consuming this content. I really appreciate you. You guys make it all worth it. Thank you so much.